You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Target books, so you don't have to. Battered by a sudden explosion of smoke and debris, the Time Lord stared at the improbable sight of the prow of an old-fashioned ocean liner as it protruded through the walls of his impossibly large control room. The Doctor groaned, jumped to his feet, and swatted small chunks of wood from his hair and clothes. The TARDIS was supposed to be impregnable, capable of withstanding the strange and turbulent forces of the Time Vortex, but he had absent-mindedly forgotten to switch on the shield, an action that had resulted in this collision. He staggered to the six-sided console, his hands moving swiftly and skillfully over the controls. In one smooth movement, the prow of the ship retreated and the walls of the control room snapped shut in its wake. Breathing a sigh of relief, the doctor moved around the controls and almost tripped over a piece of debris on the floor. He saw it was a lifebelt from the ship. He stooped to pick it up and then froze as he saw it more clearly in the orange light of the control room. What? he exclaimed again. Turning the lifebelt around, he read the name of the ship emblazoned on it. It was from the Titanic. It was dark and still in the linen cupboard, and smelled of freshly laundered cotton. Suddenly the piece was shattered by a loud wheezing groaning noise and an increasingly bright flashing light. In the small claustrophobic space, the TARDIS materialised in the incongruous shape of a police box. The door opened and the doctor emerged, still dusting the results of the explosion off his dark blue, slightly scruffy suit. He peered curiously at the surroundings of the linen cupboard, and seemed slightly disappointed to have landed in such a small and domestic space. Patting the walls in the dark, he found a door and eased it open. Slipping cautiously through, he found himself in the large reception area of a 1910s luxury liner decorated for Christmas with tasteful streamers and a tree decked with lights and baubles. Here and there he could see the name of the ship displayed against the wooden marble walls. The doctor frowned. It was a perfect recreation of the Titanic, even down to the position of the elegant staircase and the spacing between the portholes. But some things didn't match. For a start, according to the navigation system of the TARDIS, admittedly rarely accurate, they were still far from Earth, and indeed far from any habitable planet. Secondly, around the edges of the reception stood tall golden statues of angels with blank, unsettling faces. Finally, the doctor was about to investigate these out-of-place statues when a small figure dressed in a dinner suit waddled past him, his head spiked like a conker and bright red. Beginning to suspect he wasn't on the real Titanic at all, the doctor moved to a porthole and stared out. Right, he said. Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm JR. And a few weeks ago, <clears throat> we asked the uh, listeners of our podcast who are on our Facebook page to vote for their top 10 target books. 
and this episode is well this episode was going to be a rundown of the top 10 target books with a few comments but seen as the voting went across a total of something like 92 or 93 different titles i thought we'd do a top 50 instead which would be a bit more fun to do see you tomorrow morning mm. um look the thing is we don't get many people who come on our facebook page and vote when we put things up for vote so this mm. is not to be taken as the definitive top 50 <laughs> target books by any stretch of the imagination Having said that, though, I think you get a decent cross-section, even if you only get 30 or 40 people vote. And mm. I think the sort of top 10, top 20 is probably more or less what a top 10 or top 20 would probably look like. I so, so I think listening to this, you're probably going to get a fair estimation of what wider fandom may have voted for, given that we're all of a certain age and that we all have been reading the Target books since we were kids, right? So, mm. you know... Most of us are of a certain age. Right, you shut up, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the actual top 50, I thought, seeing as we had 92 different books voted for, I'd just pick out one or two of the ones that have ended up outside the top 50 that I thought might have ended up inside the top 50. So, I mean, with one vote, that means one person had it in 10th place, is the novelisation of Earthshock, for example. Hmm. Which I thought might have been a bit more popular than that. Who wrote it? Ian Sorry. Martyr. Who it's wrote an Ian it? Ian Martyr book. Was it Ian Martyr? Yeah, okay, from okay. Eric Saywood. So it's not even an Eric Saywood. Because if it was Eric Saywood, then it would be understandable. Because, you know. Yeah, but even then, it's Eric Saywood's most celebrated script. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. And also in. Well, two. <laughs> Is Simon pulling faces? No, he put his, his, he, he put his oh, hand. I was going to say, his his I remember <laughs> rushing to the shop to buy a shop. Oh, really? seeing the, the story, yeah. Even with that cover. Even yeah, even with that, with that cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, I was disappointed even at that age. Oh, did, yeah. was the cover the doctor just shooting something? Yeah. On his on knee. knee. Yeah. So they forgot about it. Was that the point where they started doing photo covers instead of exciting? Yeah, but that was because Peter Davison's <laughs> agent refused to allow oh, them okay. to use pictures oh. of him because he'd seen Peter Davison done in artwork before and didn't think the likeness was accurate enough. Right. because mm. he's bloody hard to draw. Mm. So he refused to allow art covers of Peter Davison and Target Books went through a period where um, they were using all photographic covers mm. and then Peter Davison's agent also said you can't use um, other doctors on the cover while Peter Davison's the doctor so you end up even with and this is how I understand it yeah. it's all in the Target Book right okay which okay. people can still pick up mm. And probably will be doing, having listened to last week's podcast, if they haven't already. Hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, because we're recording this one before we record that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so throughout that period, you've got photo covers with Peter Davison on and art covers that don't feature doctors for any other stories that Target were putting out at the time. I like that, though. I thought that was a happy accident, actually, that... The art covers of the other stories. Mm. Yeah, they were lovely. Yeah, but I mean, they wouldn't have been diminished if they'd had doctors on. No, no, I appreciate that, but it does give a different character to them, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true. Other stories that ended up really low, State of Decay, okay. two marks, which I thought might have got voted higher because of the audio book. Do you remember the audio book? Well, that's, that's the only one. So I didn't own the actual book itself. I you don't know whether it's... It was difficult to get hold of, possibly. 
Because yeah, I, 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 really I had the audio book, but not the book itself. See, I've got such fond memories of that audio book. Because apart oh, from yes, the Genesis yeah. Yeah. LP, that State of Decay being read by Tom Baker was yeah. the... Mm. Revenge of the Cybermen. I mean, I know it's not a great book of a great story, but even so, it comes from a period where you'd think there'd be a bit more love for it. Nice cover. Yeah, that's on two marks. It's the first, the first video to be released, so maybe that eclipsed the book. Yeah, possibly. Also on two marks, Warrior's Gate. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, but Warrior's Gate, that was the first one of only two, both by... The same author, of course, Stephen Gallagher writing as John Lydecker. Yeah. They didn't feature chapter breaks. Yes. Oh, yeah, of course. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How did he describe nothing again? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> that would have put me off reading long. it. That really would have put me off reading it. Well, it did. But by the same token, you'd also think that that would be striking enough to mm. have left an impression on people. Mm. Isn't that what Terry Pratchett does? He yeah. With yeah. no chapter breaks. Does that, do, do you find that difficult with Pratchett? Not really. I was well. Having said that, I was a lot older than I started yeah. reading Pratchett. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Here's another one on two marks: the Brain of Morbius. Well, I never. Do you remember Junior Brain of Morbius? Yes, I had that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, Junior Brain of Morbius and Junior Giant Robot. <laughs> yes, they were. Well, but I, that, that's not in the list, though, is it? That's what I'm saying. These are outside the list. But, but oh, it's, it's, it's I don't know. The Junior books aren't in the list, no, but no. but it's strange because I don't own. So I've got quite a few, but I don't own any of these. I don't have Revenge of the Cybermen, Brain of Morbius. I don't have Warrior's Gate. I don't have State of Decay. I wonder if these were slightly harder to get to get hold of than others. No, Brain of Morbius was really easy to get hold of. Yeah, yeah. Maybe after a certain date or something like that. Maybe no, in the mid-80s no, no. they sort of discontinued some. No, the earlier books were done in such huge numbers that right. if you couldn't get them in the shops you could get them in second hand shops okay. and Brandon Morbius was, was issued always, about half a dozen times there was always an advert in Doctor Who magazine I think Burton's Books wasn't it mm, Southend on yeah. the Sea or something like that they, still is is it still there I think pretty much free advertising um, but no they, they used to have Target Books for 75p or 150 or whatever because I could bolster up my collection yeah you yeah. can still get a lot of Target Books brand new there were so many of them mm-hmm. published especially the early ones and Brandon Morbius came out in about half a dozen different editions and he even Virgin were still putting them out in the 90s yeah. in new covers. But I did prefer the junior edition. <laughs> Tell you what else ended up outside the Ice Warriors. Which oh, is, really? Yeah. Okay. Giant Robot outside the top 50. Giant Robot to me was one of those really significant ones. I wonder whether it's because of because the covers were so significant as kids looking at these things. You know, they really were striking. And there were, there were two giant robots, aren't there? There was the Chris Achilleos, or whatever his name is, and the more modern one with the, just yeah. the head of the K. But they were both striking. Yeah, they were. But the first one was more exciting in comic book, wasn't it? And yeah, but it, that's what I'm saying. And that was released in a huge edition, you know, with yeah. a lot of books. Uh, big print run. So it's not like these books went around. Talents of Wang Chiang's outside Ooh. the top fifty. Planet of the got that one. Planet really? of the Spiders is outside the top fifty. Wow. Space War is outside the top fifty. It's not entirely surprising if you get people <laughs> voting for over well, we'll hundred books yeah, and choosing yeah, yeah. their top ten. It's... Mm, mm, mm. And a couple more. The Time Warrior, which features the first Robert Holmes in prose, because he wrote the in... thin book. <laughs> Yeah, but Robert Holmes, right? But it's a memorable, a memorable one. 
And, and an earthly child, which I wondered might have made it higher. Mm. Yeah, but that was one of the first with the tube sign, wasn't it? The yeah, new, and it I was like Terrence Dick's one as and well. And it didn't so have it a doctor on the front, so it must have been the first no. one we run. But, you know, I thought people might have... That might be one that people remembered, but yeah. apparently not. Should we get into the top 50, then? Mm. Or the top 51, as it turns out, because in 48th place, tied four books... <laughs> You know, this happens a lot in the lower reaches of this doesn't chart. Doesn't happen at the top of the pops, doesn't it? No, but as you get higher, it happens less frequently. In the top ten, it doesn't happen at all. But anyway, 48th place, four books tied. The Sea Devils. The Hand of Fear. Ooh. Frontios. And Carnival of Monsters. Frontios? That's yes, not one to be there. Yeah, so Frontios makes it in the top 50, What's whereas so the se- giant robot doesn't. What's so sexy about Frontios, then? I wonder... I don't know. You've uh, got to. If we are talking about this low number of people voting, yeah, yeah. Then then you're going to get quite quirky choices, aren't you? You are going to get some. And plus, I, I, even though even if it was a larger number of people voting, I think you might also get a little bit of this because people are going to be voting for the books that came out when they were a particular age. Mm. True. Yeah. And also, it's difficult to. It is difficult to separate the books from the stories, the television stories. So. That's what I found when when I was choosing them. I was trying to think of the books that I remembered best, rather than as books, rather than the stories. Otherwise, I'd just go for the. Whereas, if you're a little older, I think it's easier, right? Because when we were kids, you didn't have access to anything other than the books. Basically, I mean, I didn't really until when I was at Target, the Target Target reading age. Yeah. Then I didn't have videos either, so. Which is okay, why I've got. Yeah. I've still got a fairly sizable number of them. But. Anyway, forty-seventh Sea Devils down at forty-eight. You see, I thought that mm. might have been much higher. That had a bit of an odd cover, didn't it? Was that a Chris Achilles? Well, that came out in two mm. different, three mm. different covers kind of as well. Pink background to it. Mm. Yeah, it's quite an odd one. That. Yeah, but it's not all about the cover, Lee. Do you know what? Yeah, though? I'm the, hey, excuse me. Don't judge the books by their covers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely did. In a way, I think. There's a lot about the covers that really make a difference about you reading the book, especially me. I was quite a visual kid. It does a bit. <laughs> but I also think that some of the ones that live on in people's memories and so have turned yeah. up in these folk are the ones that they remember for the content. Mm-hmm. The book is yeah. what might draw you to it initially, but I think it's the content. And Sea Devils famously has things like when Trenchard is given that scene where he gets killed yeah. and Malcolm Hulk sort of revises the way he dies mm. and gives him a bit of... Uh, pathos at mm. the end so famously Sea lovely. Devils has got stuff like that mm. plus yeah. of course it's a rollicking adventure mm-hmm. and I'm just quite astonished it's so low down 47th place is the Highlanders oh, I like oh, the Highlanders I, yeah, I love the Highlanders I think that might be one of the ones I voted for yeah possibly uh, yeah, I, I think it worked I think it worked quite well because on on screen it's quite it's supposed to have this epic sorry on screen it's supposed to have this epic scale and obviously that wouldn't necessarily come across, although I haven't seen anything because it doesn't exist in, in the image. But in the books, you get a sense of that scale. They can yeah. actually sort of describe the battle a little bit. And mm. yeah, I like I that funny that funny thing with the Highlanders. I loved the book, and I thought it was funny, mm. and it struck me because it was one of the first historic stories that I enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, where it actually connected with me. But then I watched a reconstruction of the Highlanders, and it was. Wholly disappointing. Yeah, it's a bit book, heavy. So. It's a bit heavy going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the book. Yeah, I think if it turned up though, it'd be fun. Mm. Uh, I have a feeling Highlanders is one whose reputation would grow if it turned up. Mm. And the book, 
is closer as an experience to watching it probably than seeing a recon. Who wrote who wrote the book? Was it um Jerry It was Jerry Davis. Jerry Adams. Jerry Davis. The Highlanders <laughs> by Jerry Adams. It's a bit harsher than that, I think. But Jerry Davis was actually quite good, one of the good novelists. Rather, uh, he wasn't, a, he yeah. wasn't a fantastic, fantastic scriptwriter every time. No. But as a as a novelist, it was yeah, it was quite strong, I think. In forty fourth place, tied three books: The Two Doctors, okay. which is the only Robert Holmes book, obviously. Full Circle, Andrew Smith, and Death to the Daleks. That's a weird mix. <laughs> I like the two doctors. The two doctors would be out of those three, the one I remember best. Really? Because, yeah, because yeah. again, Death Death of the Daleks. I must have, I must have got the video quite early on, so that eclipsed the the book. For yeah, me. but I had Death to the Daleks. Death of the Daleks. I read Death to the Daleks at school from the school library in a higher back Ooh. where. Where you had quiet time and you you were allowed to pick a book, so it was like I'm going to pick a book. I'm having that one. And what a great first chapter that is of entering onto the planet. I mean, obviously it's pretty much exactly the same as the story and telly, but I don't know. There's because we didn't hadn't seen it. Mm. That, that was quite, that, oh, it is quite atmospheric. Very atmospheric. It, it really boosts the because it's it's like that on screen a little bit with the mist rolling into the TARDIS really well and the dying TARDIS, but actually in the book it's. It is. Yeah. Well, I had really vivid memories of the opening of that episode on telly, even though I was only about five. And so when the book came out, I just read it over and over and over again. I must have read Death of the Daleks something like 20 times. Was, yeah. uh, the Exelon City is much better in the book. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're five, the Exelon City is great on the telly. It's <laughs> true. But it is a... You know, in... So, there's sort of a dichotomy here going on between the books that are just rollicking adventures and the ones that try to do something a bit more philosophical. Mm. And I suppose I suppose that may be why Frontios gets into the list because Christopher H. Bidmead was trying to do something a bit more philosophical. Mm. And I expect that while that might not have you know, while the television production might not have done that justice necessarily, in the form of prose, he's probably been able to capture what he was getting at with a bit more can vividness. You can you remember anything about Frontios as a book? Does he reinstate? Because he had a really creepy idea for the uh, the digging oh, the machine, machine yeah. made out of human bits. And I wonder if he reinstated that for the book. I don't think he did, okay. because I think there were rules about what you couldn't, couldn't right, do okay. with That's the books. Shame. But it's possible he might have done yeah. But Frontios does have some interesting ideas yeah. and if you're giving characters you know third person thoughts mm -hmm. you yeah. can put some of the you can make some of those ideas more clear you can make turlo dribble less <laughs> yeah the front of is a really good story for turlo so if you can get inside yeah, yeah. turlo's it's, head inside, yeah, yeah yeah if they describe as in the thoughts then actually that would mean you wouldn't have that dribbling heightened, heightened performance you could get it all through um, yeah yeah Anyway, in 43rd place, this one is going to interest and possibly make very happy the people sitting here. In 43rd place, Harry Sullivan's War. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. I didn't restrict this just to adaptations, and I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure, obviously, is that's the only one that's not an adaptation of something on the telly, but Ian Martyr's companion spin-off novel where 
he writes a story where Harry Sullivan does espionage and stuff. There's no aliens in it, but the brigadier's in it, if I remember rightly, isn't he? Basically, it's a Bond. Actually, no, I don't think it was so much a Bond-style one. What was the character that Anthony Hopkins played in, oh, the late 70s? The, the Naval North, officer. North Sea hijack, you mean? The, the... No, not, oh, I don't know. North it might have been if it was the same character. Okay. Um, oh, I can't remember, but... Was it the Sea Wolves, was it? No, there was, in the late 70s, I think there was at least one, if not more, films with Anthony Hopkins as a naval officer. It was kind of Bond, done a bit more gritty, a bit more realistic. And I think Harry Sullivan's War reminded me slightly more of that. Mm. But it's kind of an espionage thing. But it's lovely to see it in the list. Um, In 40th place, jointly, three books. Oh, there's another Ian Martyr one here. The Sontaran Experiment. Yeah. Horror of Fang Rock. Yeah. And Battlefield. Fair Uh Well, Horror of Fang Rock. It should be higher. Well, it's an atmospheric book, but it's a Terence Dix, he said, she said one. And also, it's a, it's, it's a story that works really well on screen. Yeah. Uh, it's atmospherically, so the book doesn't actually sort of... The book's actually really good, it. but it's just literally what's on the screen. And also, yeah, also right. one of the pleasures of Horror of Fang Rock is... Tom Baker's performance. Yeah. Which, and the performances which, of the other yeah, actors. Yeah, yeah. There's some great character play. actors in yeah. there, Dean. That's yeah. what I was going to say, actually. Uh, at some point this evening, you just brought it up, was the fact that there's a difference between the Doctors when you read the books and on the screen. Yeah. Mm. So when I was growing up as a Tom Baker fan, I loved Tom Baker more than the stories. I loved I loved the actor and playing Doctor Who. But I wasn't that fussed with John Pertwee because I didn't really know him. But I loved the John Pertwee books better than a lot of the Tom Baker books. Yeah. And I don't quite know why well, that I is, think, apart from the fact that maybe John Pertwee's books were playing upon well, the kind of themes that I really liked. I think, I think well, well, like the Doom Watch In stuff. the John Pertwee books, you didn't have to watch his performance. <laughs> but in the Tom Baker books, you couldn't see his performance. But I think when, probably, when, yeah. but when I was growing up, I, I couldn't, I hadn't seen, apart from one one story, any William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton or John no, Pertwee stories. No. So reading about them was a bit like archaeology for me it was yeah, really bizarre, it had it? an extra mm. bit of excitement mm. whereas Tom Baker Peter Davison was slightly less exciting I maybe think. that was it yeah maybe that was it okay the four jointly on 36 um oh one of these is quite interesting the first three of these are the 10th planet the Daleks master plan Ooh. both volumes in together and Marco Polo I really like the Daleks master plan books I think they're the best things John Peel's written Oh, really? I, yeah, I really, I, I read and reread them quite a lot, but I quite like the story as well. But but that was my only, so until I listened to the audio that a couple was, of years right. ago, that was my only entry into the story. And I was really swept away by it. Is it worth, is it worth reading them as much? I don't I, know the master plan. I think so, because all. it's a pretty faithful, I mean, one thing John Peel does is he's really faithful to the script. Mm. So... You do get a sense, and also because they're split across two volumes, you get a sense of the a scale sense of epics, of it, yeah. an epic scale. Mm. It, it is, does come across. It is massive, and the yeah. audio is quite a good way of, of getting through it if you, you can't be bothered to read it. Yeah. Um, it's not a bad audio at all. Well, I think the book helped me with the audio, so I think the book right. prepared me for the audio. So when I got to the audio, mm. I was actually more gripped by by the story because I'd read the book. Peter Purvis that reads it, isn't it? Yeah. If I remember right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. 
So yeah. he's he does his American accent, I think, on top of the. Oh, you <laughs> mean the audio book? <laughs> yeah. As opposed to well, the no, soundtrack. I read the soundtrack. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, the, the audiobook, yeah. but he also he also links the. I think he links the soundtrack as well. So he does the linking section to mm. the soundtrack. He does. That's it. So yes, yeah. that was it. Not the audiobook. Oh, I don't know. It's no, good to oh, have, yeah, it's good to have you back, Lee. <laughs> hey, there's so many different versions of these things. Yeah. <laughs> um, Marco Polo. Polo. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, but I wonder if it suffers from that historicals thing. I don't think... I've enjoyed that more than the other historicals from Wigner Hartle era. That was sort of 84, 85 that came out, wasn't it? Yeah. Sort of... I was surprised because I didn't know... I wasn't interested in that at all. Marco Polo, why would I be interested in that as a kid? Mm. Not interested. I started it and it was really easy to get into. And I just loved it. It just meanders. There's no real... But <laughs> I thought it, it was a, a bit too repetitive. Yeah. To be honest, there were too many scenes where you've got Tigana wandering out into the <laughs> desert and digging up daggers and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Oddly, yeah, but it was I quite enjoyed it. Is she a dagger digger? Yeah. He's a dagger digger, yeah. Dagger digger. I, th- I thought it was one of those ones where, because it's such an epic story and because the, the sort of scale of the landscape and the Himalayas, it works well in, in book head. form. Mm. And after I read it, I went and bought Marco Polo's book. That you wrote, <laughs> so the travels to China book, and I read that. Has it got a blue box in it? It doesn't have a blue box in it, but it's See, actually it has. A, it is actually quite an exciting. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, not, it's not a bad read, then, is it? It's not a bad read. It's quite you an see, easy I, read. I saved my money just for the Doctor Who book. Yeah, <laughs> the Tenth Planet I thought may have been higher because the Tenth Planet was one of those sort of formative Cybermen books. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid. Though, yeah, but when I was a kid, Doctor Who and the Cybermen was like the target book you know one of the mm. absolute and so the other Cybermen books were all ones that I always thought were going to be really really good mm. but then I remember the 10th planet has been a really dull book so Cyber- either I'm surprised it's so low because it's one of those Cybermen yeah. books or I'm surprised it's so high because think, it was so dull I think Cybermen are limited in book form yeah because there's only one way you can describe them and actually one of the pleasures <laughs> of seeing them is seeing how the design develops yeah but, but once the, you describe yeah. them in a book you can't. You can only describe yeah, them in one way. Right. Just yeah, but the, yeah. the great thing about giants. the Cybermen books was the Cybermen are barely in these stories. Yeah, mm. and with the Tomb of the Cybermen and Doctor Who and the Cybermen, what yeah. you've basically got is Horror of Fang Rock, where you've got mm. a bunch of people getting picked off one by one mm. by some monster you barely see until the end and the 10th planet is the one that doesn't quite do that so that was much less gripping anyway the other book Mm, yeah (laughs) but the other book that came in on joint 36 and the reason I've highlighted this one is because I thought this would have a good chance of being in the top 10 and yet it wasn't until the 30th person who voted that it got any votes at all and I did think for a while this wasn't going to end up in the list at all. And it's the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Oh, no. What? I've never read That's it. Wow. 29 <laughs> people voted before it got a single vote. How it, can that be so low? Yeah. Well, well, only would, the best cover. Possibly. I wouldn't have voted it. I couldn't have voted it. I haven't read it. I don't uh, own it. But through I, this... I, another, another one, another one that I just didn't see. Did I, no, you didn't vote for it at all. I didn't. You no. want you monster. Well, that's gone past my. That's that's dropped out of my memory because that's one of my favourites. 
He's specifically <laughs> Matt. Yeah. Were you, were you, were you about to call me Lee? I was about to call you Simon then, Lee. I don't. Some, yeah. But through the ruins of a city, stalked oh, yeah, the ruins yeah. of a man. Yeah. Even even I know that. But even I know that section. But I still I never found it. I just didn't wow. see it on the shelves for sale. Wow. And yeah, this was another one that had a huge print oh. run. Maybe maybe it was maybe and I'm only half joking. Maybe it is a generational thing. Yeah, in terms I of when I was buying it, if you're buying it in the, the sort of early mid '80s, maybe some of these <laughs> went through a reprint, and I just missed that. But we'll get to the generation. Well, maybe they were so po- they were so popular that they were all they were none of them got sent to the charity shops and secondhand shops. I was buying them. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Yeah, I I, I remember getting a lot of them for sixty p from somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how these connect with memories, though. Big style, Dark Invasion of Earth. I remember vividly reading that in the old library if you ever go on holidays yeah, to Bude yeah. there's the Bude Castle which was which is a big building it looks like a castle it's built on sand yeah that's that's okay. the kind of what makes it special and that but in the basement under there is now part of uh, a big museum and that used to be the local library tiny little place but I remember sitting there on the floor reading Dalek Invasion of Earth well Dalek Invasion of Earth was with Death to the Daleks and Planet of the Daleks and I just had those and Genesis those four books I just had the by the time I was old enough to read a book in the morning, and oftentimes on a Saturday or Sunday, I'd get up, just pull a Target book off the shelf and just sit there in bed for two hours reading it before I got up. And I'd get through the whole book in two hours. Mm. Dalek Invasion of Earth, Death to the Daleks, Planet of the Daleks and Genesis. I just had those four on a constant rotation. It's funny, isn't it? In the, the ones in the mid-80s that came out, I remember reading them in the, in the space of a bus journey. Yeah, and then forgetting like, all about them. Two, two hours between being next one, to a De- Destiny of the Daleks was so ridiculously short mm. and actually slightly rubbish <laughs> that I remember reading that in about an hour. Destiny of the Daleks, I think we'll find and get a single vote. No, no, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but then, you know, neither did Image of the Fendals, eh? Mm. But then again, that's another non-surprise because it was again such a thin book. There was nothing to it. It was literally just the script mm. with a few lines of yeah, yeah, with a few lines of description every now and again. Mm. Uh, where did I get to? Oh, in thirty-fourth place, jointly, the Edge of Destruction and Inferno. Mm. <sighs> I remember Inferno again. It had a really good cover. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Did you cover. think so? I thought the yeah, cover wouldn't Inferno it? was awful. When I was a kid, it really, it really frightened me. Yeah. It was just like a primal against it. No, no, it was a scientist. Was oh, a yeah, scientist. that's right. The, 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 yeah. Turning into one. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the same page as uh, JR here, though, but I, I enjoyed it as a kid. I looked at it and thought, that's great. So I didn't know what it was. But now I know what it is, and I'm, I look back at it before we did this podcast, and I'm like, that's a bit rubbish, actually, that, that cover. Really? Who did that one? So that's I don't know, I couldn't I'm say. I think it would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Rubbish is harsh. We must be careful what we say. It wasn't rubbish. <laughs> I loved it. But it was. But it, it didn't do it for me. I think there was two covers mooted, wasn't there? Wasn't there? Oh, oh I don't know. I can't remember. This oh, would okay. have been during the Peter Davison period where you couldn't have an image of the Doctor. Oh, no, it's all right. I quite like it. <laughs> He's just got it out of the shelf. Matt's just got it off the shelf. No, I'm wrong. That's actually quite good, actually. Look at his version. I mean, yeah, it's, but it's, I don't it's think orange it's... orange as well. It's an orange book, yes. which is quite unusual, but it fits so well. And it's I really don't... nicely centred. And... But it doesn't scream Doctor Who to me. All right, then. Si- I did, I think the, 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 the... It's okay. 
It's okay. He should be slightly. It's taken from a photo. The pose sitting artist. It's totally dynamic. No, it is from the character in it should be a few degrees to the left. You might. should be. It's too centered. Yeah, yeah. You should yeah. break it up yes. into thirds oh, and have the character looking towards the middle of the yeah. frame. I just thought it was. But he's, he's, just like, right, like, he's having a rest between takes. <laughs> well, the top of his head's under the N in Inferno, which tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it personally. I don't think it works as a cover for a Doctor Who book. <laughs> I probably then I just have a preference for the more montage style covers mm-hmm. because that's what was around when we were the kids well, right. here's, a th- here's the thing what would you put on that cover to, to bring people in because they that's can't use point. the doctor well no but okay yeah I think in the middle you'd have something that represents the drill and then on either side you'd have a soldier on one side and a prime hold on the other and then the whole thing would be coming out of um, volcano uh, lava running across underneath but coming out of a volcano so you'd have the three characters reaching up out of the volcano with the lava flowing all around them that was almost like it was staged do you know what would have sold it more would have been two versions of the Brigadier a bit like um, Star oh, Trek yeah. Um, yeah. that's a good idea yeah. I like Solomon's yeah. yeah. um, Mirror yeah. Yeah. yeah although I prefer that I prefer the uh, scientist on the top with the red eyes. Well, sure, you could use the Brigadier. Though. Although, what was on the Enemy of the World cover? It was literally two characters oh, that, that nobody even that was knew from yeah. it. Yeah. Just, uh, not, not very well, well not very well rendered. Well, better than I could have done, but <laughs> not especially well no. rendered. Um, Edge of Destruction as well. I, got, I, I remember reading it. I mean, it, that was quite a, a late one. I managed to get it. Was it that was, quite that was late? Yeah, yeah. I think that was early 90s. Or no, late I think this, no, no, this was still... Um, yeah, we that didn't was talk Nigel, about... That was Nigel Robinson, so that was when he started yeah, editing. Yeah, early to mid-80s. Edge of Destruction was another one during the Peter Davison. No representations of the Doctor on the front. I'd be interested was to see it? what they or made was it. was it Sylvester McCoy? No, I think yeah, it was later. No, I... I think it was later than that, because Nigel, Nigel Robinson started dusting up the later stories that hadn't been done. And Edge of Destruction during the was mid-80s. one of those. It was during the mid-80s or late-80s. I thought it was late-80s. Yeah. We could, we could. I think it's later, because I would have... Yeah, I was buying a lot mid eighties. It's only got a picture of the console on the front, isn't it? Yeah, is that right? You'll soon know by the logo. I'm sure it's the logo of. Um... You soon know by the number on the spot. Oh, maybe it is actually. Does it have the doctor? No, no. If it's not got the doctor, chances are it's sometime between eighty two and eighty five or that's, six. That's what I would have said. Just but a pair I'm of sure. And everybody's screaming at the podcast, going, "You idiot!" Yeah, this is turning into the memory cheats. Do you know what we didn't <laughs> mention? Uh, we skipped right past it, but Battlefield, because there's an interesting story behind that, isn't there? Because Ben Aronovich was supposed to write the adaptation of his own script for Battlefield, and of course he famously suffered from writer's block at this time, right. which later on meant that he never felt, never finished his last new adventure for Virgin, and mm. eventually that got finished off by Kate Orman yeah. and came out after the range had finished. So, so it came out out of sequence. So Vile of Sin. So Vile of Sin, yeah. 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 It was supposed to come out something like Six from the End. Yeah. Because there was and a it story fam- arc it fam- going on. It famously resurrected. They killed off Sped or Roz or one of the main characters. And then they were resurrected for the final ever story. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. The Edge of Destruction with a McCoy logo on. 
Yeah, and it has got Hartnell on there. It has got Hartnell. Let's have a look. Tyler's console. It's, oh, yeah, it has. That's, 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 that's actually a bad. nice cover, isn't it? it is has. that an Andrew? So there's nothing about the story, um, but still. Is that an Alistair Pearson cover? I think it is. That looks quite neat. It is. Yeah, yeah it's very... Yeah. Anyway, Battlefield Sorry, yes, got yes. finished off by Mark Platt, didn't it? Mm. And because right. it was so long coming, it came out like a year after the range had finished. Just like Survivor Singh came out after the new adventures had finished, basically. Yeah. yeah. So Battlefield was like literally the last adaptation to come out. And it was in that very small collection of sort of adaptations that were there were expansions of the story as well that well, started doing quite a few were there it wasn't the time. best it wasn't the best of those which I'm assuming some will be higher up on the list well but. probably also part of that would be because it was written by a different author than had written the script yes yeah we'll get some more of those <laughs> but yeah so Battlefield was kind of a funny way for the target range because they the last Target books were like 1990. By the time they got to Sylvester McCoy, they caught up with everything. Because, yeah. yeah. of course, they're releasing like 10 or 12 Target books a year, whereas there are only four stories a year on the telly at this time. So by 1990, they've caught up with everything. And then I think Battlefield comes out either in 91 or 92. And literally, in the year before Battlefield came out, the only other book you'd had was like the Pescatons. I just saw that on my. I own. I do own the Pescatons. Oh, I've never got further than the first chapter of that. It's not the best story. Um, right, we are just outside the top thirty. The last two before we get into the top thirty are jointly in thirty-second place, and they are Planet of the Daleks and mm. the Green Death. <laughs> See, the Green Death, I would have thought, would be higher. I mean, that's got some lovely descriptions there. Malcolm Hulk, isn't it? And it's illustrated, isn't it? And it's illustrated, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, this this is it, isn't it? The illustrations made such a difference, too. Mm. Very atmospheric. Do do we know who did the illustrations in the book? Was there a particular artist at the time? Again, go back to the Target book. That'll tell you everything you need to know. Weirdly, the illustrations put me off slightly. Because yeah. I wasn't used to them, yeah. Oh, because okay. when I was hitting the Target no- novels and reading the very early ones, it just it just felt a bit. Did you put weird. your finger over the illustrations as you read? No. Okay. Well, maybe that would have helped. <laughs> Yeah, only trying to help. Did Matt. you did you just look at the illustrations instead of the words? Yes, I did, Matt. Yeah, okay. yeah. I got that tells us thing we need to know about you. <laughs> but Planet of the Daleks is higher than Death to the Daleks. See, I'm quite surprised how high Planet of the Daleks has come. Mm. But again, if anybody else is like me, that was a rollicking adventure that you just read over and over when you were a kid. And it's also got a sort of sense of scale which Death of the Daleks doesn't have. So Death of the, Death of the Daleks has atmosphere. Planet of the Daleks has. Scale, yeah, epic yeah. adventure, it's, it's, more, quest it's more adventurous, and, yeah. There's a lot more action, and it's got exploration. And of course, the great thing about them. the book of Planet of the Daleks is you don't have to look at the pictures, no. <laughs> which, although I think is pretty well directed by David Maloney, considering it was entirely in studio and he's got an entire planet on screen, yeah, it was well directed in spite of those things, and you can't really get past them. We move into the top 30 then. Um, and in joint 29th place, we've got The Invasion, an Ian Martyr one. Ooh, nice. The Romans, which is um, Donald Cotton's adaptation of the Dennis Spooner. Mm. And Doctor Who Nazarby. Oh. <laughs> which is, yeah. yeah, but I mean, that was one of the three from the 1960s. Yes. And those three from the 1960s, whatever you thought of them, they were a class apart 
from the rest of the target books because they were written for a different generation of children mm -hmm. and they were written uh, from a different perspective to the program as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas the targets were adaptations of the television stories, the three that came out in the 60s sort of tried to stand up as novels in their own right. So they were they were the Daleks in an exciting bunch with the Daleks, the Zabi and the Crusaders? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We'll get to the other two. Right, okay. But there's um, our, yeah, there's the Bill Strome one's the one that seems to have done the worst out of those three, the Zabi. I suppose maybe that's to do with bad memories of the television story. Well, but see, as the a other kid. Two, the other two were David Whittaker, yeah? Yeah. And he was, a, well, he was a genius, so that's... He was a great writer. Yeah. yeah, but as a kid, I remember the book of Doctor and the Zabi being a really great adventure with bags of adventure and... Mm. Loads of interesting characters and situations and stuff, but also entirely weird. Yeah, well. yeah, really, in a good really way. Alien. That's that's yeah. how I felt when I was reading it. It's almost not like Doctor Who, of course, because it's yeah, yeah. a different type of you know way of writing. What was the third? Of the, the, well, the other two were the Invasion, which is oh, Ian yes, Martin's adaptation. I liked mm. the Invasion worked quite well, but it, but again, because it's <coughs> on screen, it goes from an identical office to an identical office. Mm. to an identical office which is done on purpose because it demonstrates international electromatics as yeah yeah like but actually it's a bit boring but in the book he manages to get more character out and more personality because he was a character writer i think see yeah. i found the book of that pretty dull i think the was it the invasion where the review of it in doggy magazine picked up on the amount of violence in it I think it was, but Ian Martyr was quite happy to put yeah. loads of violence in. Yeah. I think there's an interesting... <laughs> yeah, but I think there's something interesting there because Ian Martyr was a companion during the first of the Hinchcliffe years and Hinchcliffe, they did put too much violence on the screen during the Hinchcliffe years. And I think Ian Martyr, because that's the year he's in Doctor Who when you've got Genesis of the Dark, Revenge of the Cybermen's pretty violent as well. And the Ark in Space is just horrible, some of it. I mean, I love it as a story, but some <laughs> of it's just nasty. And then on top of all that, you've got the Sontaran Experiment, which is about torturing people. So Ian Martyr comes out of this, so I think he just throws this into his I books. Think, yeah, he but, really uh, kind of dwells on it, doesn't he? But I was yeah. reading Stephen King at the same time as some of these books, so actually the, the violence was quite attractive to me. Yeah, I am, but, quite, I am quite a violent person. Yeah, but so. then you look at Stephen King and you look at the Doctor Who books, and they yeah. are supposedly being aimed at two entirely different audiences. Yeah, yeah. I admit that my yeah, I have an unusual background in because I remember Ian Martin's yeah, yeah, Ian Martin's <laughs> book of the Sontaran Experiment because he expands forty-five minutes of telly yeah. into hundred and twenty pages. Yeah, yeah, he really ups the ante on the torture, if I recall. Yeah, cool. And the other one of those three was The Romans, yeah. which is the Donald Cotton book written from the perspective of... Who's that one written from the perspective um, of? It's, but again, it's like a first person... It's one of those epistolary books, mm -hmm. if I remember rightly, where each chapter is written from the first person perspective of various so, different characters yeah. with a wraparound thing from... Not Homer, but somebody... Epistolary other. means if it's in the form of letters. And diary entries. Oh, okay. So, uh, like Frankenstein. Oh no, uh, like so, you know, Matt's Dracula. looking straight at me. Like Dracula, because I had a because you had a puzzle. Dracula is an epistolary novel. Oh, okay. Because it's told in the form of fragments of letters. Right. And so is from the woman the, in white, like, as in the Epistle to the Apostles, the letter oh, to the Apostles. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's all 
diary extracts, letters and things thank like you. that. Thank you. No, honestly. That's okay. Thank you. That's right. I, oh, really? I, I you could have asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't find, I didn't find it very interesting. The Romans? No. I didn't like the way it was written. I wanted, to, I wanted it written like the... Normal know, target yeah, books. Yeah. yeah, you see, I loved it. And at the end of the day, what have the Romans given you? Uh, <laughs> a bath. Sorry. Oh, that was good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, David Cameron can make um, Monty Python jokes. Don't swear. Um, <laughs> right, this is, I suppose, where it starts to get interesting. In 26th place, three more books jointly. And 40 minutes of the way through, this is where it starts to get interesting. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this is where we're... Well, after yeah, this... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. After yeah. this, we're in the top 25. That's what I mean. Yeah. And it, and I'm going to say at least one book here in 26th place where your jaws will drop that it's not in the top 25. At least one of these three books. Okay. So, in 26th place, jointly, we have... The Evil of the Daleks, which is John Peel's adaptation of that from the early Virgin years as yeah. opposed to the Target mm-hmm. years. We have The Three Doctors. Mm-hmm. Didn't make the top 25. Which, okay, it's a Terence Dix book okay. and it's not necessarily one of his better ones, but that is one of the iconic books. I don't know books. what though, but when I started, when I first started properly collecting them, and I didn't get very far because I ran out of money, uh, I went for the event novels. So I went for your three doctors, mm. and I went for Earthshock, and I went for um, I don't know where else, Tenth Planet, and you know, oh, what's the first appearance of that particular creature? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the last one of that particular creature? And I, because to see the thing yeah. is, Matt, you were growing up slightly later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. if you got into and the Target books when there were only thirty or forty around, yeah, those titles there that you had a choice of, there were some like, because if you've got a choice of eighty books. Well, yeah. That kind of diminishes the first 30 or 40. But if there's only a choice of 10 or 20, yeah. then each of those 10 or 20 seems really special. And The Three Doctors comes from that period. And I don't own it. I don't, another yeah. one that I don't own. But The Evil of the Daleks, I'm, I'm actually surprised to see it so high because it came so later. Mm. It misses the childhood of most of the voters. Basically. Well, I think there's a dichotomy here. So, and I'll yeah. get into this more when we get into the top 10. Yeah. Because I think there's something really telling about the top 10 to do with this dichotomy. Mm. And I think we'll have a little conversation about it when we get there. I think I bought Three Doctors <coughs> off the back of Five Faces as well. I think I watched it and then went straight out and found it in the... Yeah, the that wouldn't surprise me. It was another one of those ones that I really vividly remember reading when I was a kid. But the other one that came in in 26th place... Is Genesis of the Daleks? What? I'm leaving. <laughs> well, again, again, I didn't own it, but also because because the soundtrack was released yeah, so this... early mm. that actually I didn't feel like I needed to own the Target, but the soundtrack eclipsed, and it was a really good. Yeah, but again, I think this is a generation thing. Lee and it. Simon yeah. and me, if uh, yeah, yeah, all yeah. for all so, of us, Genesis of the Daleks mm. was the. Basically, the number one target book to own. Yeah, nobody of our generation didn't have a copy of that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yet that's fallen outside the top twenty-five. There's there's only the Achilles cover of that, isn't there? That I know of. Yeah, yes, and it's absolutely gorgeous. That's one of the ones. It's that strong, (gasps) considering how iconic the story is. It's bizarre. It's yellow, and it's got an orange kind of doctor, and all this sort of. It's just really, really odd. Yeah. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Mr. Barber? 
I'm not Dr. Barber. I'm not laughing. It's all right. I can call you Mr. Barber if I want. Surely. Can we, call, do we have to call you Doctor? Oh, no, yeah. you don't. You don't have to call me Doctor. <laughs> what are you laughing Look, at, Doctor Barber? Well, Benjamin has made me. <laughs> Jethro was transfixed with the crazy woman repeating their words. Doctor, he said, pointing at Sky, his finger slightly shaking. Doctor, said Sky, without emotion, exactly as Jethro spoke the words. The Doctor was holding her gaze. I know, I know, said Skye simultaneously. Professor Hobbs leaned in a little and whispered loudly. Doctor, now step back. I think you should leave her alone. Professor Dobbs froze on the spot from a mix of confusion and fear as he heard his words echoing back at him. What's she doing? he uttered. What's she doing? Skye uttered. How can she do this? Skye continued to mouth the words precisely. Val was fascinated and worried. But she's talking with you. Her glance at the professor was cut short when she realised with horror that Skye was mimicking her too, word for word, exactly at the same time. And with me, she blurted. And with me, Skye copied. Oh my God, Biff, what is she doing? Oh my God, Biff, what is she doing? Jethro was curious and said that they could all see... Jethro was curious and said what they could all see, but refused to believe. She's repeating at exactly the same time. Dee Dee cut in, shaking her head. That's impossible. The professor's eye gave away an old tick that he thought he'd conquered years ago. The stress was getting to him. There's not even a delay, he breathed. Skye's lips were locked onto everyone in the cabin. When they spoke, she spoke exactly at the same time all the time. Jethro felt like he was drinking the cocktails back at the dome. He felt dizzy and drunk. Oh man, that is weird. The doctor turned his head to the onlookers, a semicircle of frightened human animals and nowhere to run. I think you should all be very, very quiet. Have you got that? Val ignored the doctor. How's she doing it? The doctor put his hand out as if stopping traffic. Mrs. Kane, please be quiet. Val carried on. How can she do that? She's got my voice. She's got my words. Panic was creeping into her body. Biff held her tight. Sweetheart, be quiet. Just hush now, hush. But even with those comforting words, Biff's heart leapt out of his chest when he realised he too was being audibly caricatured. She's doing it to me, he shouted. The doctor was trying to keep calm, but his voice rose to a crescendo. Just stop it. All of you, stop it, please. The caged animals fell silent. What would happen now? They were all too terrified to move, talk, and even breathe. Could this sky woman steal your thoughts, thought Jethro? Or maybe even your air from your lungs, thought Val. Suddenly all impossible things were possible. The thought of this scientific abomination and her abilities actually existing in front of their eyes was pushing up the professor's blood pressure to a dangerous level. Dee wasn't sure whether to record the experience or cry, confused, frightened, and curious all at the same time. Only the doctor seemed to know what he was doing. A strange man in an odd attire with some kind of superiority complex. He seemed to have authority, though, and know something more than he was letting on. For the moment, their lives were in his hands. Roast beef! the doctor suddenly exclaimed. Right, if we've all recovered from the shock of Genesis ending up outside the top 25, let's get into the top 25. 
And in 25, 25th place is the Ark in Space. Oh, love the cover. I haven't read it. Very yellow. <laughs> I think we'll take that as red, a... Matt. I think you can just chip I've in read, if you I've have read, read something. No, I've, all, I've, read, I've got a whole shelf load up there. But there are just a few really famous ones. I've there. got five shelf loads. Well, you've got, yeah, you've got more shelf loads. You've got more children's books than I have. Well, I would hope so. Yeah. Because <laughs> reading these things leads to things like... I was like, a child. Leads to things like calling them the Warren for years. Yeah. Mm, the Ark in Space, yeah. actually, that Ian Martyr, he did a really good job of fleshing that out so that... Because yeah. it could have been, a, yeah, but it could have been a really clinical story, and there were lots of Terence Dix books around at the time doing the he said she said thing. Yeah. And I remember the arc in space, especially the sort of first two episodes where he was dealing with the weir- he dealt with the original attack on the um, space station, and I think he pretty much did it from the Wirren's perspective. Wow. And so all this stuff really made it feel real, and I remember that book being. Very dark and scary when I was a kid. Um, 23rd place, joint Power of the Daleks, right. which is another John Peel one, early Virgin years, and The Massacre. Oh. Yeah, well, That's that was... Nice. You know, the Massacre was done almost first person from um, Stephen Taylor's perspective, That's because, right. of course, it's based... And John Lucarotti went back to his original scripts rather than doing it from the Donald Tosh scripts, which are the ones that made it onto the telly. So actually the novel of The Massacre is a very different experience from listening to the audio of The Massacre. Mm. And I think that's stuck in people's memories, for that, partly for that reason. Oddly, I think I prefer it. Well, the book? Mm. Mm. I guess we'd find out if it ever turned up. Right, <clears throat> in 22nd place, mm, The Abominable Snowmen. Oh, I do like The Abominable Snowmen. Mm. I think that was one of the first I, I got. And I'd re- I, that was one of the ones that I did read, re- reread. And, yeah. and again, it's, it's because it's got pictures in real it. atmosphere. Well, because it's set in, the, set in the Himalayas, <laughs> so it's got a sense of scale. So the book could fix the fact that they filmed it in Snowdonia and actually make you imagine it was on the side of a Tibetan mountain. They filmed it in Snowdonia? Not the book. The uh, story. Say. Yeah. Yeah. I found it a bit dull though, I have to be honest, when I was a kid. It didn't, it never grabbed me in the way that, say, Doctor Who and the Cybermen did. The Web Affair was a better. I think I was busy watching mm. Hammer movies as well at the same time. I was quite a dark childhood. I think also <laughs> that I don't like people's names, unpronounceable names. Padma Sandava. Yeah, I couldn't ever say that. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, but not when you were six, Matt. It just it just annoyed me. Okay. Uh, as, whereas you'd yeah. probably sit down and, and you know break out break down that word and go for it and go right. I know what that means and I know what that says. I can say it in my head now. That's great. Doctor. For me, it just goes le 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 le. Well, yeah. In word, it was Padma Sambava. Or something like that, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. sounded yeah. like some cheap Spanish holiday. And you even had Thomney. Thomney, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. Know, for, me, for me, that meant it was more exotic and, and you know, alien. So yeah, that worked, that maybe. worked for me. But it's not true book, isn't it? It needs to be Tarrant and stuff, doesn't it? <laughs> 
please. In 21st <laughs> place is Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, yeah. no, classic. Yeah. No, classic story. And the book is basically a Terrence Dicks he said, she said. Hmm. Weirdly, that didn't bother me. I think that's because... Because um, such a good story, such a good, such story. A good dialogue. Yeah. yeah, but you could rattle it through. You could read it an hour and a bit, mm. maybe. Yeah, there are different ways of of judging these books. Some of them books alone, but some are so tied into the original story that mm. that you can't separate them out. No, so, and... so actually, a straight telling of a really good, like um, Talons of Wen Chiang, which I'm surprised isn't higher. Mm. But again, it's such a really good story and strong story. That that affects the book that's written. The book isn't brilliant for that. It's, well, it's there's a lot of these, books. and that's the funny thing because a lot of these books literally are just a script on the page, really. Yeah. And yet, some of them have come into the sort of top twenty, and then other ones, which are just as strong stories, have fallen outside. Mm. So it's literally just a case of which ones caught people's imaginations mm. mm-hmm. more. I guess the Loch Ness monster probably came out two years before Talons of Wang Chiang, yeah. and with that generation of readers, got a two-year head start on it. Mm-hmm. Into the top twenty, then, and in twentieth place, The Seeds of Doom. Yeah, Philip Hinchcliffe, of course. Yeah. Philip Hinchcliffe doing Terence Dicks. I am I am I right in thinking... doing a he said she said thing? It is. Oh yeah. Okay. Am I right in thinking that I said it downstairs earlier? Uh, that there's an introduction with the crinoid kind of floating through space. Mm. Or was that spearhead from space? No, no, no I think right. it was yeah. this. Yeah. See, I love that. I love the fact that you know, well, that you was... always have these little extra bits, and I like the introductions that you know people take their time over, as opposed to dealt with the bannermen, which is uh, a ridiculous opening line. But um, no, it's nice to have a nice description of something that you don't see on the screen, and I love that. Yeah, but you know where that comes from. That comes from the 1978 movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the title sequence at the start of the film yeah. is the spores floating through space and eventually descending to Earth. And oh. that's. And I would be happy <clears> if that was the beginning of every book I ever read. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine the beginning of the massacre being plant spores floating through space and gradually descending to Earth. Or any Catherine Cookson, even. That'd be fine. Um, in 19th place. <laughs> And I think this is Spice of the book, wasn't it? Well, in nineteenth place, and this is where we start to get to into properly into this dichotomy that I was talking about. In nineteenth place, it's the Curse of Fenric, mm. which is one of these ones from the very late eighties that really expands on the story and fleshes things out. Well, I think it's it's a good book as well as being a do, good Doctor Who book. Yeah, so because it's, it's unusual and it's it's written by. I think these these are the books that are written as a kind of an audition piece for the new adventures, the new adventures, the new adventures. <clears throat> well, no, well, yes and no, I know, but I think officially, yeah, no. But what I'm uh, the caveat to that is nobody had any clue that there'd be original Doctor Who fiction. I think it's more a case of these books were written as audition pieces for people who wanted to go into writing prose, full stop. And I think I I think they were also written. They were also written and edited with the intention to demonstrate how new adventures could work yeah, and how you could expand, expand Doctor Who beyond the television stories into different areas. But so could... those, little, those little bits, the sort of little asides in Curse of Benric and and the mm. other books, that kind of give extra extra texture to the story. And you needed it. I mean, when I read this book, I read it in um, 
in Southampton Library and I read it in one go wow. about three, yes. three hours worth and I just utterly loved it because I knew the, the episode on TV and it was the episode that got me back into Doctor Who strangely that and Remembrance of the Daleks although in England we say story not episode okay um, <laughs> stormy uh, but again with Curse of Fenwick I loved it but I kept looking at it and watching it because we had video players and you could do that it still didn't make any sense so there were a bit I thought there's stuff missing out of this so when the book came out I was really excited hoping he'd plug the gaps and he kind of did there were lots of bits in the book which really knit things together which but, makes sense and I think why wasn't this on but that's also also a good point why they've why they've the, the book expanded on things is because People started videoing things off the telly uh-huh. around season 24 or slightly earlier. So you needed to do something different with the books. The books weren't any longer just... He said, effectively, she said. He said, yeah. she said, she said. She said. Self, she <laughs> There's a lot of shows. They, they weren't just intended to remind you of the television story. They were intended to work alongside the television story yeah. and to, to give an extra depth yeah. to them, I think. And there was extra depth. Yeah. I love that. Novel. Yeah, yeah. I love it. In 17th equal, two books, Pyramids of Mars and the Doomsday Weapon. Now, I think that's a really interesting pairing because Pyramids of Mars is one of those books that I think, like Genesis of the Daleks Mm. and like the Loch Ness Monster, we kind of remember because it relates a very good story. But having recently revisited the Pyramids of Mars novelisation, it really, really is just the script up on the page with nothing in between. Yeah. And yeah, here it is in the top 20 because people have got such fond memories of it because I think, and this is back to that generational thing, you're talking about a time when there weren't video recorders, so it didn't matter that it was just he said, she said. As long as the story and the characterisation and the dialogue was strong enough, that's what you really wanted. Although oddly, I think I voted for Pyramids of Mars as well, and I must have, and that was the first video I got, so I must have got that in 1987. So I probably had the video and I was reading the books at the same time, quite happily. And you're a weirdo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one's the Doomsday Weapon, which of course is Colony in Space. And we talked about that a few weeks ago and said it's a good story. It's just not a terribly great production of it. And here's the book, which is a terribly great production of it and really fleshes out some of the background of the characters and the situations and yeah. the scenario, basically. Mm. So <clears throat> that's another weird one where they give a different introduction to. Is that the one Grant, where they yeah. introduce Joe Grant? Yeah, yeah. Again, because yeah. they hadn't written, yeah, Terror of the Autumns yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, Doomsday Weapon was one of the very first target of the targets, wasn't right. it? I think it was okay. in the first two years. Okay. Illustration. Did, did they number them? So they numbered them, but they numbered them alphabetically. They numbered them retrospectively. Oh, okay, okay, because Abominable Snowman was number one. Yeah, they didn't number them until they were about 105 or 10 out. And then they decided to go alphabetical rather than any sensible order of publication or story. It's just alphabetical. I suppose it gives another way for fans to order them on the shelves. Well, you can always put your target books up alphabetically. There's nothing to stop you. No. A library would do that. Lee, would it not? Yes, but then by author, alphabetical by title. Mm, nah. So you, in theory, your Doctor Who books would be littered, yeah, scattered. If you didn't you know what you were doing, but most most, li- you, most libraries take themes. Well, your shelf you know, would just your shelf would just have all the dicks <clears> together then. 
Yeah, we collect, oh. a, lot, we collect a lot of dicks on the shelf. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it would just it would be a real cluster of dicks. It would be a massive. Yeah, it'd be, it would be. Yeah, it'd be a, like overflowing. They'd be falling off the end. You'd have to have like stoppers at either end to stop yeah. the dicks from falling off. Yeah, but you'd have to have a lot of hard yeah. wood on that shelf. Well, the the books are Actually, quite do thin, you have so any... the, the dicks would be quite floppy as well. So you need to really. So many. Well, only the only the paperback dicks, but the hard dicks, the hardback oh, dicks. the hard dicks would would last an age. That's fine, and yeah. and libraries tend to have. Yeah. 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 And I'm not going to go into the next. It's the, yes. <laughs> In. Yeah, go on, Simon. No, no. Go on. Was that a... No, I was just going to say, it'd be quite impressive to see a shelf completely with dicks right across it. Yeah. In joint fifteenth place, Tomb of the Cybermen and Terror of the Autons. Which are two of the great early, well remembered ones. Terribly, I haven't got either of them. No, no. <laughs> just chip in if you've got a book, Matt. No, no, but, but it's, I, I'm finding it interesting that some of these really big hitters, and I didn't, I haven't purposefully collected specific ones. I got the ones that I could find in bookshops over the years, and I couldn't, I never found, actually, I do have two in the side of them, but I, I never found, what was the other one? Terror, um, of, the, Terror, Terror of, the of the Autons. I never found Terror of the Autons in, in any of the bookshops. It might yeah. be a geographical thing. Maybe Andover had... Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was Coast. how close they were to certain warehouses. Yeah, the East Coast had a whole on, load of autumn, Depending on where they uh, got them. Because you guys would have got them all in the West Country, presumably. Or Yorkshire. South. South, yeah. Southwest. Tomb of the Cybermen does a... In spite of the fact that it's a he said, she said, Terence Dix, it does a good job of making something atmospheric out of that story. And that again was one of the ones that was read and reread and reread mm. because it, you it's know, got when, a bit of description in it. It's not a lot, but that's yeah, enough. but it's it's basically on the same level as Pyramids and Mars. But it's such a strong idea for a story that even though the story doesn't work when you're reading it, you don't really notice that. You're just following the characters, and waiting to see who gets bumped off next. Basically, there's a I tell you. A lot of the more fondly remembered ones from that period are the who gets bumped off next ones, aren't they? <laughs> I remember reading that. It's the one with Toberman in it. Mm. And, and having this uh, uh, image in my head of a, a big womble. <laughs> 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 Honest truth. Well, that's not a shock. Terror of the oh, Autumn. Because of, cause of Toba Mori. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. That's fine. So, I, mean, I thought you were slipping into very dodgy territory then. <laughs> but the one it's come up jointly with is Terror of the Autons. Okay. Which, which is it? also racist. <laughs> yeah, but Terror of the Autons was, again, such a great book. It's not a who gets bumped off next, but it's a what happens next. Yeah, the 12 chapters just... in that book, each of those chapters is a story unto its own right. Yeah, yeah that's great. With two very different covers. Yeah. And the first, first one being an absolute cracker, in my, my eyes. It's beautiful, in fact. It's a, it's a poster. Do you remember that? that well, one? The one with the eye. No, it's the one with it's no, that was, that was Achilles. Chris Achilles again. We're talking about Terror of the Autons, not the Autumn Invasion. Terror of the Autons. Was the one with the eye the Autumn Invasion? No, no, no. It was no. Terror of the Autons. Was the Autumn Invasion the one with the the octopus? The, yes. The, there was yes. a definite squiddy. The octopus was an Achilles cover uh, for uh, Autumn Invasion. Right, right. Terror of the Autons and the Autumn so. Invasion both came out originally with a sort of cartoony type cover. Right. And then were reissued in different covers. That's right. okay. And the Terror of the Autons reissued one is the one that everybody remembers because mm-hmm. it was basically just a really lifelike painting yeah, it's of almost this creature with a giant eye. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's but really fun. I think it was cartoony, the front of the, the original. Mm. 
Right. Yeah, I think it had a soldier leaning over one of the dummies with a gun. Did you only ever actually mm. look at the covers? With the master yeah. up I on the mast. I adore the covers so <laughs> much. They're so atmospheric. I, I live for vision. I don't think I've ever seen the original cover then. You have to get a copy of the Target book because all the original covers oh, are reproduced in there. Definitely worth Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're up to 14th place, which is Ghostlight. Oh. A game from that period of Mark really, Pat. really rich stories. Mm. But, really... but but less it's I know it does have it does have sort of side side yeah. side this, movements this did the same areas. for me you know uh, with Curse of Fenric yeah. filled in yeah, all yeah. the gaps I didn't quite yeah. understand it yeah. explained what control was and, the, and it, it helped that Ghostlight was such a rich story in the first place and this is the, a three and such a such a literary story as well and this is the three parter expanded yeah. to the same word count as the four parts of Curse of Fenric. Wow. Yeah. So you've really got Mark Platt going to town on making yeah. this a proper novel, mm-hmm. which it's is it's a goodie. Mm-hmm. Which is what makes the difference. In thirteenth place, the demons. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit thicker than a normal he said she said, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. But it's Barry Letts is writing. It's Barry Letts is writing. He, he is, loves yeah. his own characters. He does, yeah. he does lavish attention on his own characters. Yeah, he expands and fleshes them out a little bit. Nice. I think I voted for the demons, but I'm always going to do that because that's my signed by John Pertwee copy. Oh, so the actual physical artefact of the book means something to me. Which which cover have you got? Uh, it's in my private is special book place. What, is it the Achilles private special uh, book No, it's got, it's got a Zal on the front. Funny Mark full was full colour. Yeah. Well, so? That's the reprint, yeah. Yeah. If only Mark was here, he could talk about whether that was a euphemism or not. My what? private special book. Your special book place. My special book place, yeah. No, my special book place, my place for special books. Which still sounds like a euphemism to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've gone way past euphemism for all that talk of... Um, Dicks. The demons on telly, and especially when you could only see it in black and white, mm. was a pretty spooky story. Mm. In the book... Yeah. It's a really involvingly spooky story. Yeah. Even though it's still... You know, the early targets, for all that we say, oh, they flesh this out and they flesh that out. And they do. But they still are, by and large, the story in print form. But what they did with the first sort of two or three years was instead of literally just do the script in print form, they'd actually rewrite whole swathes of the script so that they basically follow the same story, but do completely different dialogue and character beats. Mm. But all, you know, in service of telling the same story, but in doing a job of it in print that follows different rules than you do just by putting the script up with he said, she said in. And The Demons was a really nice example of that, in that all the characters in the story that you get on the television from the actors as opposed to from necessarily the dialogue mm. but here you really feel them all you yeah. do all really feel like real people I think also at the time I was reading it I wasn't allowed to watch certain horror movies and you know I, I, there were certain movies like uh, Devil Rides Out that I wasn't going to get to see but I want, I knew about and wanted to see so The Demons of the book was like reading a novelization of a hammer yeah, yeah, and yeah. A horror, and that made it more exciting. And it did. It felt like that. It felt, like, it felt like. And also, it's such Dennis a ha- Wheatley for kids. It was such a yeah. happy production, <laughs> and Barry Letts knew that it was a happy production and felt such fondness towards the production and all the actors in it. And of course, he'd written that, the script that this as well. Comes, yeah, this comes out in the book as well. Absolutely. 
Right, number 12, The Five Doctors. With an artwork cover of all the previous Doctors. In silver, laminate. Yeah. Oh, it's really exciting. Pretty sure I read it before it came on telly. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. was out the week before it was on the telly, I think, mm. and a lot of people did. Yeah. It's a terrible book, to be honest. <laughs> but It's a terrible story. I like the story, actually. It's an exciting story, but, yeah, but... it's still episodic and... Yeah, but that's not an issue. This is Doctor Who. It is episodic. It doesn't, yeah, but episodic. But well, I think it's exposed. The the flaws in it are exposed when it gets possibly. To I think it's a good yeah. idea, and I think the um, resolution to that idea is well done. Yeah, I think that's the strongest thing about the Five Doctors that the idea is so good, and it does itself justice at the end. And I think for me, the strongest thing is watching all of these old actors get together. And you can't get that in a book because you just no, got, you can't. It's like all the old actor descriptions come together. And hmm. well, the one thing about the book is that it did come out just before it was on telly. Yeah. So lots of fans rushed out, bought the book, and devoured it. Yes. And for them, or for us, that was kind of our anniversary special for a few days. Yeah. And we were imagining what these actors were going to do with it. And then when we got to see it on the telly, directed by Peter Moffat. We all went back to the books and thought, yeah, so much better in <laughs> <laughs> But it was nice with the actors. In 11th place, and I've got to say, this warms my heart slightly because this is one of my absolute favourites. It's David Whittaker's Book of the Crusaders. Ah. Which is... You know, when I was like young, young, and first buying the Target books, the idea of the historicals really didn't sort of spark my imagination. And yeah, I just adored the Book of the Crusaders because it didn't feel like a historical. It felt like they'd thrown the Doctor into this alien situation. And because there was a bit of political intrigue in it, you get involved not just in the characters, but in the plot. Mm. Doctor Who will often involve you, in the books particularly, either in the characters or in the plot. Something like Planet of the Daleks involves you in the char- in the plot, but not in the characters because it doesn't really do anything with the characters. And then something like The Demons, where the plot is largely quite perfunctory just to get various set pieces on the screen, that involves you with the characters rather than necessarily the plot. But The Crusaders really involved me in both the plot and the characters when I was a kid, and I just absolutely adored reading that. Mm. This, is, this came out in Dragon, didn't it? On uh, Dragon Print? Yeah, yeah. Publishers, yeah. With a really kind of... Um sparse cover the Doctor running away from one of the Crusaders um, there's almost like various different covers oh, I right. think but yeah I do have a copy I'm of all that. about the covers hey 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 <laughs> well all those ones no, that came out in the, all those ones that came out in the 60s have got completely different stylings on the covers <laughs> from the Target reprints yeah. but I do have a copy of it in that and a copy of the Target hmm. Foster placed the animal gently onto her desk. The creature, six inches tall, glossy white and looking like it had been sculpted out of a tub of lard for a children's animated film, blinked two small black eyes at Penny and waved an arm in greeting. It gave an audible approximation of, Hello! And Penny noticed a single white tooth protruding from its upper jaw as it did so. For a moment, Penny considered the creature to be almost sweet until a journalistic appreciation of fact returned she forced her brain to make the logical leap between its complexion and the concept of human fat. She didn't know whether to be sick from an overabundance of cuteness or revulsion. 
This shocking revelation coupled with the accompanying strange noises was too much for both the Doctor and Donna. They each eased their faces upwards to get a view of the proceedings. Dropping his stethoscope, the Doctor slowly raised his head over the edge of the window, while on the other side of the room, Donna carefully stood up and looked through the circular glass of the door. "'What the hell is that?' ventured Penny, not knowing whether to feel threatened or bewitched by the animal. It currently seemed to be finding amusement emptying the contents of a hole-punch device, blowing the paper circles up into the air as they fell. "'Adipose,' said Miss Foster, awash with pride. "'It's called an adipose, creatures of living fat. Quite miraculous.' Instantly, a number of factors fell into place in the Doctor's head, and he momentarily changed focus to gather his thoughts. It was then that his attention was taken away from the drama by a pale face framed by a circular window on the opposite side of the room. Donna, meanwhile, having had her earlier brief contact with another pose confirmed, was looking to the darkness outside for a gap in the visual overload to think what to do next. Her eyes dropped to the base of the window, where an open-mouthed Time Lord stared straight at her. Doctor! she mouthed. "'Donna!' replied the Doctor, giving a slight grin while overtly shaping the words to enable long-distance lip-reading, his face then changing to its more serious form. "'Donna!' Jumping up and down and pointing to her own face, Donna grinned. "'It's me!' Tracing the two fingers from his eyes to her direction, the Doctor confirmed silently, "'I can see that!' He decided to take charge of the exchange and mouthed decisively, "'What are you doing here?' Donna, thrilled that her search was finally over, continued to celebrate and waved profusely at a big smile dominating her face. The Doctor, somewhat confounded as to the odds of he and Donna ever meeting each other again in the City of London, let alone the expansive multiverse, tried a simpler approach. Why? What? When? Finally, Donna responded, her lips shaping the words with enthusiasm, and her face attempting its own version of charades. You! I was looking for you! Me? What for? The game spread from Donna's face to the upper half of her body as she mimed, illustrating her story. Came here, trouble. Read about it, internet. I thought trouble equals you. And she pointed with both fingers at the doctor, to which he nodded in a fair enough manner. She continued, this place, weird, pills, so hid. Now, little gnomes. <clears throat> and she walked two fingers over the palm of her hand towards where the adipose stood on the desk and where Miss Foster and her guards now stood, looking directly at her, and then at the Doctor. "'Are we interrupting you?' asked Miss Foster. "'Run!' mouthed the Doctor. "'Top ten. Who's excited?' Uh, <laughs> "'Okay, oh Lee's excited. That's, "'That's not excitement. <clears throat> "'Doggy. That's, Lee's having a heart attack. "'Okay, <laughs> this one's got yellow Daleks on the front. "'In tenth place, Lee, yellow Daleks. "'What does that say to you?' Paradise Towers. It's Day of the Daleks in at number 10. <laughs> Day of the Daleks. Day of the Daleks? This is, again was one of the That's ones I read and reread when I was a kid. Mm. Oh, well, this is the very first cover for Day of the Daleks. Oh. Um, it doesn't have a yellow Dalek. So well, there's a gold Dalek. I don't know. I always associate yellow and Daleks with Day of the Daleks. Orangey. Mm. It's a good one. It's a good one though because it's a ghost story and a Dalek story, and the ghost stories work really well. Well, the first couple of chapters work sort of similarly to the demons. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then it gets into this time paradox thing, but in the form of literature, Mm. I think the time paradox story works really, really nicely, and it expands upon the characters of the time travelers from the future. 
so that you really feel their mission. So it goes from M.R. James to George Orwell. <clears throat> yeah, sort of. Yeah. Or um, Robert Heinlein or something. Mm. But you really, in on the television, Day of the Daleks feels like a slightly odd Doctor Who story. I mean, a good one, but in a way it feels slightly odd because Doctor yeah. Who never does time paradox stories, or at least not in the classic series. But in the book, if it almost feels like it's a book that's not a Doctor Who book that just happens to have the Doctor in it. But uh, but I think it really works like that. Hmm. Fond memories of Day of the Daleks? Yeah, absolutely. I can't add any more than what you've just said, to be honest. Okay, in ninth place, The Myth Makers. Mm. Well, that's understandable. So it's, a, it's a, an interesting spread of... Things like Romans and Massacre. Some of these slightly more obscure... Well, historical left-field historical. Yeah, and the comedy ones as well. Well, it's because... Work the... really well when they're written down. But it's because of the way they were written. Yeah. The Massacre, the Romans, mm. the Gunfighters as well, but I think that's the less popular one. And the Mythmakers is the most popular and the so most was, obvious of was these. Was the Mythmakers written from the point of view of... It was another epistolary one, yeah. basically. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I think it was essentially written entirely first person from uh, Homer's yes. point of view. Yeah. And he's having the story related to him. Right. At points where he's not present in it. Mm. But yeah, so basically the Mythmakers reads as this sort of comedic first person retelling of the story. It, it seems which is to, completely unique. It seems that's that when, why it's done so well. When some authors get bored, they do something interesting. When Terence Dix gets bored, he just tells the story of the script mm. with very brief descriptions like that not Destiny necessarily because he was bored but because he was busy well yeah, yeah. was the is one of those I've got a reissue is it like a double one with the gunfighters yeah right. both by Donald Cotton mm. yeah and both written in a similar style oh I've got the seeds of, I have the seeds of doom I did I did have the seeds of doom but that was in that they did the yeah the omnibus yeah. editions with the silver spines and the mm. Seeds, Seeds of Doom and Deadly Assassin or something like that were together. Odd pairing. They were very, they were odd pairings, mm. but, yeah. Uh, so the Mythmakers is unique because of the mm. way it was written. And when it came out, that was the first of those three books that were done like that, which would be the other two Donald Cotton ones. And The Massacre takes a vaguely similar slant in that it tells the story from a completely different perspective to the one that is on telly. And this is why The Mythmakers is rated so highly, because of those books. It's the one that is, A, the funniest, mm. but B, because it was first, most mm. stands out. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, this I think is... It's, the most, it's definitely the most successful <clears throat> of those, mm. of those um, Donald Cottons and things, yeah. But this one featured highly on a lot of people's lists, just because I suppose when you're making a list of ten, you're not necessarily... I mean, like, I've said this before. If I were to pick my ten favourite films of all time, literally eight of them would be Stanley Kubrick movies. But you just wouldn't do that. Mm. You'd pick maybe two Kubrick movies and then you'd try and go for a bit of variety, right? Just as if you were going to pick your top ten favourite Doctor Who stories. If you were being honest, you'd probably pick either ten from Hinchcliffe and Holmes or whatever. But instead, you'd go for a bit of variety. Mm. And I think if people are going for variety on their lists... A lot of them are including things like the Myth Makers just because it did stand out so much and because they do have such strong memories of it. But also because because some of these stories because some of these stories don't exist at all, so we can't see any of it. 
actually that changes the That's nature of the books. That, that yeah. means that the books become so much more important. So the Highlanders, yeah. the Myth Makers, uh, Evil of the Daleks, Power of the Daleks, they're the just more yeah. precious, the books, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Myth Makers is probably the one of those that most stands out. Anyway, number eight on the list is The Web of Fear. Yes, oh, yes. I agree. <laughs> well, yeah, but basically it's another Terence Dix Pyramids of Mars. Really he said, is. she said, yeah, yeah. It is. But again, exactly the same reason you just said. Yeah. Didn't know what the heck was, you know, it looked like at all. And it was one of those massive built up legends. And also a story that's so atmospheric that that in text it just works. Well, well and this, yeah, and the atmosphere is largely because of the text, because mm. of the book. That's mm. why it got its reputation, because the book was so oft-read. It was one of those ones where, again, you just... There's no story. It's basically just a dozen people hanging about in the underground mm. for 12 chapters. And yet the characterization's rich enough... And the web of fear, I think where it wins out over some of those other sort of he said, she said from the early perfunctory Terence Sticks period, where he's still not quite gone into just putting the script on the page. But I think where it wins out is it has that twist at the end about which one of the characters is the double agent. Mm. And I think, I could be completely wrong, but I think if you've got that hanging over the whole book and you can... Whereas on the telly, I think you forget that there's a double agent and I think the telly doesn't repeat it often enough that it becomes mm -hmm. a thing that you're waiting to find out who it is. Whereas in the book, I think you take more notice of when they prompt. So the book becomes essentially as close to a whodunit as the Doctor Who book range has probably ever done. Mm -hmm. And I think because it's also got that strong atmosphere of these dozen or whatever number it is, people being stuck in this place. And then whenever they do break out of this place, it's like big battle with the Yeti and they're back in the place because it's the only safe place they've got to go. It's like 12 people hiding in a hole. And it's not who gets bumped off next, but it's can these 12 people save themselves from getting so angry with one another that they start fighting amongst themselves. So when was this released, this, this book? I think it was about 76 or 77. Right, so they'd have, 76, junk, they'd have junked it by then, obviously. Well, it didn't make any difference because nobody was going to see it anyway. No, so what was... Who was the author, was it? Terence Sticks. Terence Sticks. So was it, he was just going from the scripts, was he? Yeah, all of the Target books were done from the scripts because they didn't have... It cost a lot of money. Even yeah. when they did have access to the film cans, it cost a lot of money to have somebody go and fetch them and set up a screening Green room watching, and get yeah. it. Yeah, They so never did it. He's just going from memory. He's just going from the scripts. He's going from the scripts. And That's what they did. They got the scripts, scripts yeah. out and went from the scripts. So did you reread it once it was discovered? Well, I don't think so, no. no. Okay. Just wondering if your experience would be different. Oh, I should imagine it would be completely different. But then people on this list are voting for their... Basically, people are voting their memories of the Target books as mm. much as they're voting for the actual a, writing. That's one of the things, when it came back, nobody was particularly surprised by Web of Fear. It looked no, pretty yeah. much like you would imagine, and that's partly down to the book, partly down to the fact that the single episode that did exist 
had sections of the tunnel, it had the atmosphere, and it had the army, so you, you could and see bits of it anyway. And it's partly also and because fandom had got over the shock of seeing Tomb of the Cybermen. Hmm. Having yes. built that up in their heads, they knew not to do the same thing with the Web of Fear. Yeah. So, yeah, whereas Tomb of the Cybermen was initially a shock to the system, Tomb of the Cybermen, when that came back, was probably about the same shock to the system as, say, for example, I got when I first watched Death of the Daleks on VHS, having imagined something akin to Star Wars from reading and rereading <laughs> the book. But, but Web of Fear is so much later on that you yeah. just... People are more attuned to knowing what to expect. Yes. But yeah, for many, many years, that book was... A lot, I would say alongside Tomb of the Cybermen and maybe Doctor Who and the Cybermen in a sort of triad of the most atmospheric of the books. Mm. Yeah. I think it might have been that book that I tried to read the book and watch the, um, the little reconstructions at the same the time. Tele- the tele- oh, really? yeah. I couldn't do it, obviously it was going too fast. Mm. But I really wanted to see you know, if, if it matched because that was the closest we had. Mm. I got about a chapter or two in and just mm. like, that's so stupid. <laughs> we could always have just paused it and put it on slow forward. Oh yeah. <laughs> In seventh place, Fury from the Deep. I always wanted to get it. <laughs> I think Fury from the Deep's a pretty rotten book, if I'm honest. Mm. It's, it's a bit it? Yeah, I didn't enjoy it at all. It, when it came out, it was. Target had been doing 128 pages, well, 120 pages of print, pretty much from the start to the end. The first few books are slightly longer. By the time they get to about 1976, they've sort of decided on 128 pages. And from that point, for about the next 10 years nearly, all the books come in at 128 pages. And when Fury from the Deep came out, they allowed Victor Pemberton to do a longer book. So that he was able to, because say for example, Talents of Wen Chang has got exactly the same number of pages, and so does the War Games, as for example, the Robots of Death. Actually, Robots of Death is a bad example because that's about 110 pages. But you know what I mean. Hmm. A six-parter has the same word count as a four-parter, and Fury from the Deep was the first time they allowed the author to do a book that had a page count for six parts, the equivalent of what you'd normally have a page count for four parts. So they put it out as now a bumper volume, and it was like, Mm. I can't remember, it was something closer to 200 pages or something. But I just found it really dull when I read it, and I didn't find it especially well written. No, I mean, it's exciting to read exactly, you know, for the reasons we've been saying already, that it wasn't around to look at. But it wasn't the greatest read. Do you think not very good at descriptions, Victor Pemberton? And yet, this has come in number seven, and so some for some people, obviously, this is one of the well, highlights. This, this, of the this range. was an event again. It was the bumper volume thing. Mm. Do you think the fact that you weren't that impressed with the book coloured the way you listened to the audio? Well, because you've always been a little bit. Well, you've you've. I've never been less overly fond with of Fury yeah. the Deep. And does that come from the book? Do you think? I don't know, because when I watched... Actually, I watched it as a recon. Right. But I found that a completely different experience from the book. And the reason I'm not overly... I don't dislike it. I just think that if it should ever get found, it would just be a slightly dull season five story. Better than the Ice Warriors, but not as good as, you know, the enemy of the world. Mm. 
Whereas the book, mm. I don't know, I found the book a bit of a difficult read, but not because, you know, because it came out when I was like 15 or something. So it wasn't because I was finding the prose difficult. I just found it rather turgid, to be honest. Mm. But that's just my own personal experience. And obviously for other people, it was a great read. Number six, Doctor Who and the Cybermen. <laughs> which I'm slightly surprised didn't end up in the top five, I guess. Doctor Who and the Cybermen, for me, you know, I keep saying this over and over, was one of the ones I read over and over again. But mm. Doctor Who and the Cybermen was probably the one that made the biggest impression. And at watching it then, afterwards, the two episodes that exist, it is an absolute utter nonsense of a story it's got the <laughs> least logical plot since the 10th planet but as a a novel when you can only read it i tell you the thing that most stood out to me about doctor who and the cybermen was it had three companions that i didn't really know i was more aware of who jamie was but ben and polly i had no idea really who they were and every time i read it I was never sure that Ben and Polly were going to make it to the end of the book alive. Mm. <laughs> You'd never get that with a book nowadays, would you? It's been a while since I've seen the actual televised story, but is there is it possible that they kept the presence of the Cybermen a secret until the reveal of the Cybermen in the bed? Because you didn't see a Cyberman for quite a long time and it was called the Moonbase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was part of the part of the thrill of watching it and also it's it's this question of it's not just who causes this plague but it's also how they cause the plague because mm. it's spread in the sugar and that's the so logical it's a, thing it's a how done it rather than a who done it yeah, yeah, other yeah. things are pretty major redesign as well so if they yeah. weren't going to announce it would people instantly recognize them as cybermen yeah but i'm thinking that that obviously obviously if it, if the mystery of the cyberman being in it is a factor mm. they kind of blow that out of the water by calling the book the, Cyber, the Cyberman, Cyberman so they now play it and sell it as a Cyberman story I tell so you what really works is the how done it in the book that mm. you don't that doesn't work on the telly as well is the geography of the moon base mm. okay. and the fact that because what they've done is on the telly part of the reason why the telly works in the way it does is because you can afford one big set and a number of smaller ones mm. so you've got the big Graviton room set Gravitron room set and then you've got smaller sets for the larder and stuff like that in the book it kind of sells you the geography so whenever anybody has to leave the gravitron room you get a sense that they're in danger of getting picked off by whatever it is that's lurking in the shadows mm. and you know it's the cybermen but you know what i mean every time anybody leaves the main room in the book yeah. you get a sense that they're in danger this is yeah. a, side, a side thing but what i've always wanted to see is a book of maps of doctor who stories yeah. So a map of Devil's End, a map of of the the moon base, the, the moon base or and also a map of the TARDIS. That would be really exciting. That's brilliant, Matt. Are you going to do it? No, because I'm not. I'm not an artistic type. Somebody will now, though. I know. It's a brilliant. Yeah, I think it's a good a idea. Cartographer. It's, it's a really it's a really yeah. limited idea. And it, would, it would sell to only a very few nerdy people. My name is Matt. But each, each you could have a double page spread of I don't know. It would the, the cave system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, design. you compare it to like a Tolkien map. Yeah, yeah, but, but there's map. a certain pleasure with having these maps attached to the stories. 
And that's so, something that Doctor Who books it's a bit like, never had. It's a bit like the cutaways that you get, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that people really enjoy cutaway Star Wars vehicles and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But also, some people take pleasure just in maps. Yeah, you do. I do, yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm yeah. a huge fan of yeah. just maps. Yeah. I do, I love them. Yeah. And particularly 3D maps as well, I really like. But I, could, I can sit on Google Earth and just for hours take a look at, not just places Watch, I've been watching to. Watching my house. <laughs> Well, but the also, pictures don't move, Simon. You oh, yeah. twit. But also, the, a, a map can actually at my house. There's a Dalek really? in the front window. <laughs> but actually, a ma- yeah, a, ma- a map can also add depth <laughs> to a story. So, a book of Doctor Who mm. maps would actually yeah. make some of these stories more concrete. The only issue with it. that is it would essentially have to be ninety percent, if not more, a work of fiction because none of these stories well, yes, actually yeah. have maps. So well, that's well, that's what I mean. Is yeah. is fictional maps are actually mm. that's. That's the whole point. Deep Sherman, places like that. That'd be really good fun. I can understand the Devil's uh, Hump map. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Fun, yeah. And buying the local shop. Although it would be a work of fiction, with some of these stories, like the Android Invasion being a good example, you Mm. can kind of work it out because you get scenes where actors come in from one particular direction when they've come from such and such a place. So you Mm. can work out how that relates to the place. imagine, Imagine also looking at Legopolis and trying to draw a plan of the TARDIS based on We'd have a series of maps of something yeah, yeah, like Legopolis, yeah. wouldn't we? Like do Castrovalva, I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the one, that, yeah. That would be really cool. It would be a pop-up book. You'd have one page where it just sort of pops up. No, no, no. It would, be, yeah, uh, it would be one of those ones where you've got a spinning wheel. Uh, but, and as but, you spin the wheel, everything but, but, moves. But the best thing about Castrovalva is they draw a map in Castrovalva. Because the Doctor draws it on the back of a mirror, doesn't it? Oh, Matt, your idea is brilliant. I want it to happen. I want it to happen. I like the Android invasion idea. No that you have one actually on the Earth and then yes. the mirrored one on, on the planet, which yeah. just, you know, you only have a little bit and then everything yeah. else is white and there's mm. nothing apart from rocks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or the web of fear. Some sort of map of the underground. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. Wow. <laughs> you see? Yeah. Then you could market it. I tell you what, Joe, the reason you think Google Maps doesn't move is because you're always watching your own house. Of course, nothing moves in your own house because you're in there watching Google Maps. Yeah, funnily enough, every time I look out the window and look back, i am just got my head lowered at the window rather than up, looking out of the window. That's it's crazy, it. isn't it? And everyone's got pixelated faces walking past the window. Oh, God. <laughs> to save this from getting... In fifth place, we're top five now. In fifth place, Doctor Who... The cave Monsters? The Dinosaur Invasion. Oh, that's a good one. Sorry. Should be in the top five for sure. Should be number Were one. Were you high fiving me then, man? No, no, I was holding my hand up to speak. Oh, okay. That's a good one. A bit like a Vulcan oh, gre- greeting to me. It was, it was going on there. Your fingers were. Obviously, the opening chapter was Shoeing McPherson, is what people remember. Yeah. The rest of the book is essentially the web of fear, except it takes out the whodunit aspect and replaces it with the who's the double agent aspect. Yeah. And it takes out the um, spookiness of being in the underground and replaces it with the spookiness of being overground in what should be an overpopulated place that nobody's one. there. And the, the dinosaur invasion is a fantastic <clears throat> story with one, with one very, very fatal yeah. flaw, which is easily fixed in the, the books, which is the yeah. dinosaurs themselves. So the book is, you know... I was gonna, the, um, sorry, to I was going to say the covers. Again, I've only got the second cover. Clack. Oh, it's the clack one. Clack right, okay. Yes. Coming in. But Why uh, did they change that then? I don't know. They changed them all at a certain <laughs> point. And it is a bit weird to have the... I mean, it's fantastic. But it's, 
It doesn't go with the photograph covers, does it? <laughs> so I, think, I think Chris Achilles asked for that to stay on. I think we've had several different versions of Achilles. Achilles. I think, I think I've said Achilles, yeah. You've said Achilles. Yeah. Achilles. Achilles. And these are tiny Achilles. furry mammals from from Portugal. That's that's when Achilles went to went to Manchester. He became Achilles. <laughs> but I think he fought for the clack and he won. But the my... thing about the drawings is they felt like something out of TV comic from the sixties. Yeah. So they already felt out of date when they were turning yeah. up in the mid seventies. So it was obvious they were going to do something about that sooner or later because. Yeah. Okay, you're selling these books to kids, basically. So to have these sort of drawings come artwork, kind of slightly cartoony covers, yeah, you're kind of selling that to kids. But I think as you realise that the range is going to be a success, what you're trying to do is expand your audience with slightly older kids. And so you go for the slightly more artwork ones to try and sell it to the older kids because you know you're going to get the slightly younger kids anyway. I've always been most fond of the Alistair Pearson covers, that that sort of level of detail and photorealism. Mm. Really mm. like, and also the design, like you were saying, he's obsessed with putting things into hexagons or yeah. panels and squares. Oh, oh, beautiful. Really yeah, beautiful. What I will say about the Achilles thing, I don't think any of the artists have been quite as influential as Achilles. The whole no. point of this. Yes, yeah. Sort of yeah. effect. Yeah, Achilles, that's how you say it. Um, the, that cover, though, the second cover with the dinosaur in front of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, the, this is the first Target book I read, I think. Uh, the first wow. one I bought was Visitation, but the first one I read was that one. Um, and I loved dinosaurs. Who? What kid didn't love dinosaurs? I love all those dinosaur films that came out, all those animations, uh, not animations, all those, you know, um, the stop motion scenes, stop motion stuff. So obviously, <laughs> you imagine. I, I imagined how great this was going to be. Not only that, it was mixed with all my favourite themes of desolated London. It had a, some medieval squire tenant in the middle of nowhere or whatever. Uh, it had the Third Doctor, uh, you know, who I didn't know very much about, but I really kind of liked the idea of Sarah Jane, who was one of my favourite companions. All these things happening in this book was just like, wow, this is great. With Unit as well, it's just fantastic. And of course, you know, it's that moment, isn't it, when you first see. That Death doctor. to the Daleks yeah, or that, Tomb that, of the Cybermen. strange shock of watching and going, my God, it's really as bad as everybody has said. Except I think it's, I still think it's brilliant. And I thought it was brilliant when I first saw it. In what way? The story. Oh, the story. No, no, okay. no, the look of it as well. It's only the dinosaurs. That's what I'm only, talking about. Yeah. Mm. yeah but, but everything but about else about brilliant. Yeah. They must be able to CGI those little critters out now, surely. <laughs> no, too expensive. Too expensive to do dinosaurs. I, thought, I would have thought home. Somebody at home would be able to do it. Surely it's got to be done. It's got Someone to sort it out now. With them. <laughs> also, their video effects superimposed onto film, which makes it twice as hard as well. Because mm. you can't take the, you can't take the original elements out, so you literally have to superimpose over the top of the dinosaurs. Fine. Well, you do know, it. Paint, paint that to a degree, can't you? Yeah. Um, but doing the right, <clears throat> kind of. Yeah. Right, the top four now, and these four were way above everything else. And in fact, the top two were way above the other two in the top four. But in fourth place, Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah, I mean, even more so than some of the other ones I've been talking about now, this was the one that I kind of really most fondly remembered just because of the story beats. I really enjoyed 
the sort of B-movie plot that Robert Holmes had written. And Terrence Dick kind of expands it out a little bit, but only in terms of he kind of emphasises some of the humour in the characters, really. Robert Holmes already draws caricatures, and Terrence Dick really goes to town making them into caricatures in that story. But it's just such a great adventure that has a real lick of pace about it and a real sense in every chapter and every episode of it moving on. So you've got the first three chapters, the first episode, where you've got John Pertwee in the bed. Is there a prologue of him changing? Oh, there could be, yeah, I think so. But that those three chapters where Pertwee, the third Doctor's in the bed, that could have been a really dull read before you get into the adventure. Mm. But actually on the page, that's like a real mystery unfolding, Mm. is that the story, the plot, is taking place in the Doctor's absence. And I think you feel that even more than you do on the TV in the book. Mm. Because in the book, you kind of expect your main character to be a presence throughout or not a presence at all, in the same way as, say, Poirot would turn up a third of the way into an Agatha Christie book, perhaps. Mm. But here, the Doctor's actually there, but he's not a presence in the story. And I think in on the page, that really becomes a thing. Mm. And that kind of draws you into the plot such that you get to the point where the Doctor wakes up, where then he does become a driving force. That I think in the form of prose, that really kicks the story into gear in a way that none of the other books that I've enjoyed just as much really do. So Spearhead from Space as the Auton Invasion, that's the one that sort of really, really grabbed me by the gut when I was a kid. Mm. And I get that one because it's got pictures in it, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's made just for you. I still prefer Terror. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. That's me. You're a comic strip fan though. I am. So that would, that makes sense. Mm. It's per the two novels work as a perfect complement to one another, though. You could read them back to back, and it feels like one big story. I couldn't, because I don't own Terror of the Autumn. Right, but if you did, you could <laughs> have I read did, them back to back. I may back, have two copies. I'll have a look. <laughs> no, don't don't worry. No, I might. Do you know what I will say though is that I've been picking up <laughs> like second-hand ones in charity shops, and um, it must be an age thing. Because obviously there was a time I wouldn't have bought anything which wasn't brand new. Mm. But now, if I find somebody's name in it written in childish handwriting, I love it. Yeah. I love the fact that it feels used and. Yeah. And the the last book I bought was um, C.S. Lewis' book, Narnia book. I can't remember which one. Boy, The Boy and the Horse or something. Yeah. Anyway, and uh, it had on it, this book belongs to me. <laughs> <laughs> no clue. Oh, nice. But yeah, it's quite cute. Uh, in third place, <clears throat> this may surprise you, Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks. Ooh. Well, it had to be in the top five, didn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. But I didn't know whether that might surprise you that it wasn't higher than third. Mm. Be- no. <laughs> it, annoyed, no, it annoyed me. What, what, the difference at the start? Yeah. Really? Yeah, struggled with it. <gasps> you really love you know, the monster. I probably love it now. But, but could you not put... The, I was right. going to say... If you read it again, put your fan side, put your Doctor Who's to one side. So that's what, it's when I was very young, I wasn't, I wouldn't even have described myself as a fan. I wouldn't have been self-aware as a fan. I just yeah. didn't like the fact so that would it you, was different. But would you have known 
would that have come from the movie? That would then? have come from the movie. So actually, yeah, it it diverges from the movie, which in itself has a different start. Yeah, it does. To, it? to the yeah. television yeah. story. Yeah, so I mean, there's so many bollocks. different starts to to the Dalek story. <laughs> but it, but, but because it's David Whittaker and because it comes out in 1964 and it's right at the start of Dalek Mania and because the movie's on the horizon, this does literally work as. Mm the second of three very different tellings of the same story that almost literally have nothing to do with one another. And actually as a as a condensation of an unearthly child, it's pretty it's pretty good. In terms of in terms yeah, of yeah, yeah. it's actually quite a good start. Well the meeting is so yeah. atmospheric. Yeah. It it's, is. It's and it brings these people together as strangers. Possibly slightly better than an unearthly child because it doesn't then go on to a three three episode story with cavemen well I like that story though <laughs> I like it but, but... in An Unearthly Child <laughs> three of the people already know each other yeah which is a kind of an amelioration against the weirdness of the Dalek part of the story on Scarrow mm. whereas here what David Whittaker's done the four people Ian and Barbara complete strangers to one another and to Susan mm. so once you get to Scarrow Literally, only the Doctor and Susan have any knowledge of one another's personality and reactions. Mm. So Ian and Barbara are literally finding one another throughout the whole book. And that really, really works as a backstory in the book, as a way of telling a story, and in the first person by Ian as well, of Mm. course. Mm. But it really works as a way, as a subplot in the book that kind of manages to take the surface plot from Terry Nation's story and give it something deeply resonant on a personal emotional level to go with it. And it's not about the relationship between Ian and Barbara, which is a great story in and of mm. itself. And of course, this comes to the fore again in the Crusaders novelization. But it kind of works on all these different levels. You've got the Dalek story, then you've got potential romance between Ian and Barbara, which you could have had anyway, even if they'd known each other at the start and been the teachers. But you've also got them finding out who one another are as people as well. So it just brings another level to it and turns it into a book that's not just an adaptation of something that's been on the telly or that's about to be in the cinema, but turns it into a book about two people that just happens to involve a story about going into time and space. Yeah, now, now we're all writers... Um, <laughs> Simon, um, maybe worth going back and reading it again. I know, probably and then looking at it from a writer's point of view, actually. I remember reading it and thinking, I'm reading something which is meant for older readers. Yeah. I think it was slightly above yeah. my own understanding or my own sensibilities. So you'll probably, yes. you'll probably be all right now. You've probably reached the point where you can, you can cope with you afterwards. Yeah. I'm not sure Lee would be no, alright. No, right no, no, no. Has it got pictures in it? It's yes. got a front cover, so it's fine. Then. It's it's invisible, a see-through Dalek, rather. It's glass Dalek. Invisible. And it's, invisible Dalek. And it's <laughs> a glass Dalek. And it's got the uh, the food machine as well. Is that the one with the food machine in it? Which is really good. And it has a bacon and uh, egg, a bar, a bar like yeah, a Mars yeah. bar. Yes, yeah. yeah. the bacon and egg. But the illustrations... The fact that that stuck with me. It's got different illustrations in the 60s edition and the Target edition, if I remember rightly. Could have two different illustrations, Lee. I don't remember having illustrations. Yeah, there's illustrations in the 60s one and there's illustrations in the Target one and they're different illustrations. There's there's the one where the the doctor sort of is going through one of the Dalek doors 
and he's bending over slightly. That's one of the illustrations. Quite, quite, I remember. Sketchy and quite yeah, yeah. minimal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, sketchy. Well, I think I was. That that title's a bit intimidating on its own, isn't it? Doctor <laughs> Who in an exciting adventure. Yeah, it's of the always day. just been Doctor Who the Daleks to me. Yeah, but back in the sixties, a book that was called Doctor Who in an exciting adventure of the Daleks is just a description of what the book is, isn't it? <laughs> and it works. <laughs> well, also it's selling it's itself on the, on the Daleks more than Doctor Who. So mm. it's sort of mm. even though, like, what was the front cover like? The oh, the Doctor Who, the, the cover of the paperback edition that is the one the most people have tar- got. Weird extended TARDIS thing. Yeah, and the yeah. Doctor running out onto the planet's surface, but the planet's surface is just literally almost barren, and there's no right. Daleks on the cover, I don't think. Yeah. So it's kind of a really, it's kind of a freaky, slightly Saul Bass type, North by Northwest opening okay. titles type cover. <laughs> right. Saul Bass, yeah, isn't it? It is, it's that very is. kind of Saul Bass, yeah. yeah. Right, in second place, and this is the point where I will have the conversation about the dichotomy, I suppose. In second place is Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. Oh, okay. Where there's... <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work very well on audio, Lee. That's okay. Silently again. Yeah! I love it. It's great. Yeah, yes. It's good. Yeah. yeah. It should Number two, I think the Dalek should be higher and the Cave Monsters a bit lower, but it's top five job for sure. I love... It's fantastic, this description. Of of uh, you know the, the, the lizard man. Well, it's yeah, it's interesting man. that the so far the top two of the top three books are well written. They've got extra texture because Malcolm Hulk adds adds extra details and David Whittaker adds extra mm. details. To extra his story. texture, not she said. He they're said. not. Yeah, they're not just dicks. <laughs> they're actually they're actually sort of expansions. Listen, but you story. get a chapter from oh. the perspective of a Siluria. Yeah. I tell you what really freaked me out about this book when I was a kid and made it difficult for me to read at first was the whole thing in the beginning where the man who's been in the cave and seen the creatures sort of turns caveman and starts drawing on the cell walls. Yes. I found that really freaky and always off-putting up to a certain age. And then when I passed a certain point, I just read and reread that book over and over again. Because mm. it's about lizard men and it's got dinosaurs and it's in caves. In mm. So I was I was never into dinosaurs as a kid. Well, so, you're just a wrong one. No, I fell I fell into that I fell into that gap between Harry Harryhausen and Jurassic Park, oh. where there wasn't dinosaurs. There weren't dinosaurs. There, oh, yeah, right. yeah, but I don't know oh, about yeah, about J.R. and Lee. But we every year at school we had projects that went for like a few weeks. Mm. And every year, for at least the first four years of school, it was always started. Always started with dinosaurs. Mm. Always, yes. prehistoric era. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, when I was doing it, that was a voluntary thing. <laughs> You'd have projects, <laughs> when, and you could do dinosaurs. When when Jr. was doing it, that was current affairs. Helps. <laughs> 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 I lived up London way, so I used to go to the Natural History Museum quite a lot. So that added to it. I'm really proud of that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You've been waiting 18 episodes. I wish there was some sort of uh, drum roll effect that I could. Anyway, it's not going to happen because I'm editing this podcast in first place. Does anybody want to guess at what's not come up so far? War games. I say Remembrance of the Daleks. Oh, yeah, let's go for Remembrance, shall we? <laughs> it is first place is Remembrance it? of the Daleks. Yeah. That's because it's a really good It is. Really good book. But, and like I say, this poll. You could kind of tell by the sort of ten books that a lot of people included. 
that it's done as much on memory and nostalgia as it did on the quality of the books. Yeah. You kind of remember the quality of the books and those would be the ones that you'd have nostalgia over. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think the dichotomy comes in. The people who've got 70s nostalgia have got a fairly wide choice of 15 or 20 books that were essential reading from 1976-77. And so things like the Cave Monsters and the Auton Invasion and Genesis of the Daleks are all vying for the space and people are remembering the extra bits in... Auton Invasion and uh, Cave Monsters and Genesis of the Daleks gets pushed out. If you have that nostalgia for 1989-1990, around that period, you've got maybe three or four books. And clearly the best one of those is Remembrance, so that ends up at the top of a lot of people's lists. But if you're of a certain age and you've got nostalgia for the season 25-26 novelisations... You'll have just the same nostalgia for the seventies and eighties books because they keep on reprinting them. So you've actually got a greater yeah, but the different types of, of books, novel. Matt, and I think that's the yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So they if you've got different. what I'm yeah. saying is, if you have a nostalgia for the style of book yeah. that was season twenty five, twenty six, you've basically got about six books yes. that you yeah. could choose from. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a nostalgia for the style of book that Dix and Hulk mm. and Jerry Davis were doing back in the mid seventies. You've got a wider range, because they were... I also think if you get on board with the new adventures, then you're more likely to like season 25, 26 adaptations, because they are the, the bridges. And of those, Remembrance of the Dice is the obvious one, whereas yeah. in the 1970s, there are about five or six ones that are the obvious yeah. one. So the, I think what's happened yeah. is... I'm not, I'm not just arguing with the fact that Remembers of the Daleks probably is the best book, so it's probably won it anyway on merit. But I think if it had been the other way around, if there hadn't been so much choice in the 70s and if there had been more choice in the 80s, yeah. I think it, the result might have turned out differently. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I'd have liked to have seen some of the some of the 70s, but I'd be interested to see some of the 70s books written in the style of Remembrance yeah, of Daleks, yeah. see what that sort of expansion so for instance, different... for instance Talons of Wang Chiang with scenes from the the, the, the 51st, world, century, yeah, yeah. 51st century yeah 51st century and scenes from uh, Lightfoot's adventures in India or, or China rather mm. see I'd like to see the opposite like I'd like to take a few virgin novels and make them like Terence Dix novels yeah, see how that works. That's well, you can always read the, the eight, <laughs> read the eight doctors, and find out for yourself. Yeah, read yeah, every yeah. third word, uh, and put some pictures in as well. Yeah, the remembrance of the Daleks is, you know, the actual episode on TV again was one of those quite dense, and I thought quite confusing at the time. Well, I was gonna, yeah, because you're dealing with the hand of a mega, which is a massive background of the time lord Sorry, history I am, that we don't know about. No, no, I'm younger than you. I didn't find it dense or confusing at two, all two, when I watched it. Two factions of Daleks and Coal Hill School, blah, blah, blah. No, that's because I was used to just watching Doctor Who okay. as it was, yes. and I gave up on Doctor Who and oh, Colin okay. Baker. So when I came back, I was like, hello, there's a yes, lot going on here. Yeah. And we only had one watch, so yes, yes. I was I was a bit lost. I thought, have I missed, mm. a, have I missed oh, a load of stuff? Yeah, and then when I rewatched it, I still found there were gaps in it. It didn't explain yeah. the hand of Omega very well. Yeah. But when you read the book, you've got it. So okay. that's why I love the book okay. so much. And of course, Similar to storytelling in Doctor Who in the 1970s, and especially in the 1960s, was a bit different anyway. So I don't think you could do a Ben Aronovich on something like The Sensorites, for example. 
or Planet of Giants. And I think this is why Remembrance of the Daleks stands out and Curse of Fenric and Ghostlight stand out against the other books that were coming out in the 1980s. Because if you look at, say, and I know it's Terence Dix, but even so, the novelizations of those 60s stories that were coming out by then, Nigel Robinson was bending over backwards to make a novel out of The Edge of Destruction, and Terence Dix was just throwing up the script for Planet of Giants almost as was. So it's a different kind of thing. I remember really enjoying the book of the smugglers in spite of the fact that it was just your basic Terence Dix book because I really enjoyed the plot. Mm. But I don't think Terence Dix could have done a Ben Aronovich or a Mark Platt on it. I think it would have killed the story dead. So there's that weird dichotomy thing going on. Did we get any there. Colin Bakers in that top 15? <laughs> what do you think? Yes. Do we? I can't We've got the two, two doctors. Oh, the two doctors. Mm. Right. That was Amazing. it, though, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's okay. understandable, because it is the only... Are there any other notables where there is an improvement? I mean, some like Twin Dilemma, how is that in book form? <laughs> oh, actually, no, that's got a bit more character, hasn't it? No, Eric Saywood's not... I don't... I'm not the biggest fan of his novelizations, but at least mm. I seem to remember either Twin... Is it Twin Dilemma, where he he has a very, very long, detailed description of a character picking his nose? Well, in the Twin Dilemma... Eric Saywood had just also written Slipback and he was right. very much trying to do the twin dilemma as the kind of book that Douglas Dr. Adams would yes. have written yeah. of the story. Yeah. Okay. Which at least at least gives it an edge. Gives it a character, it something yeah. different, but not very pleasant. No. That's such a weird story because Anthony Stevens written this 50s pulpy sci-fi thing and Eric Saywood and John Nathan Turner want this really techie 80s sci-fi story. And then Eric Saywood goes off and writes this sort of really um, satirical Douglas Adams-style pastiche on the page. So the Twin Dilemma book has got all these weird influences pulling it in all sorts of different directions. It's not a very good book, but it's yeah, certainly it's... a more interesting read than, say, the Book of Time Lash. Mm-hmm. Or... Mark of the Rani or whatever. Mm. As Clara finished speaking, Ashilda turned to the doctor and waited to see his reaction. This man, the man who had twice saved her life, the man whose footprint she had spent all these centuries protecting, hiding from the outside world, the man she considered the closest thing she had to her father. And as she looked into his eyes, she saw two things, absolute resignation and absolute fury. For a moment, she thought he was about to strike her. Then Clara spoke again. But we can fix this, can't we? There's nothing we can't fix. No, said the doctor, with simplicity and finality. But the doctor wasn't a man to give up easily, as the Shilder had known all her life. But you can, he said to her, in words that were barely audible. Fix it. A Shilder blanched, felt herself shrinking on the spot. I can't, she replied, in a voice hardly any louder than his. It isn't possible, you know it isn't. The doctor, his body shaking with barely contained rage, towered over her. Oh, you can, he said through clenched teeth, and you will, or this street is over. I'll show you and all your funny little friends to the whole laughing world. I'll bring Unit, I'll bring the Zygons. Give me a minute, I'll bring the Daleks and the Cybermen too. You will save Clara, and you will do it now, or I swear I will rain hell on you for the rest of time. 
Ashilda shook her head helplessly and waited for the inevitable blow to fall. But for a second time, Clara interrupted it. Doctor, you can't do that. I can do whatever the hell I like, the doctor seized. You know me well enough by now, better than anyone ever has. And what's the one thing you've never seen, never once in all that time? You've never seen anyone stop me. There was a moment of absolute silence, broken only by the distant core of a raven in flight. The doctor is no longer present, the doctor continued. There's just me now. And Ashilda, I will put an end to you and to everything that you love. Stop it! Clara bellowed, and even the doctor flinched back at the force of her words. For God's sake, Clara repeated, will you just stop? This was my fault. I did this, no one else. I know, the doctor whispered. I know, I just don't care. Of course you care, said Clara. You've never stopped caring, and you'll never be able to. That's why you feel like this now, and that's why your reign of terror wouldn't last any longer than the first pair of frightened eyes, the first crying child, because you do care, and you know it. And for the first time in several minutes, Ashilda wondered if she might actually make it out of this alive. And so until next week then, I was Matt, I was Simon, I was Lee, and I was JR, and we'll speak again soon. Thank you.